Destination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. children stayed out of school and arrived at the 16th Street Church to march. Will Connor tried to stop the marches before they began and brought out the city's police dog. champion we thought he was white then we realized he was black like muhammad ali but still for us foreman represented america he arrived with a dog a german shepherd which immediately offended africans since the belgians had used shepherd as police dogs Raw video like this is changing public perception of police dogs. Here, police in St. Paul, Minnesota, use a canine unit, a dog and a handler, to apprehend Frank Baker. Baker's an African-American man who was identified, mistakenly, as a criminal suspect. Well, what I was hearing was, get out the car with your hands up, and walk toward us. So I walked toward them, and I took like about seven or eight steps. 
And they said, turn around. As soon as I turn around, he let the dog out on me. And the dog just started just biting me and just, just tearing me up. That, that dog, he made me a cripple before all my life. I can't dance no more. I can't play sports no more. I can't run. That's all. My whole life, I was playing football and ran track and did things. I can't do that anymore. I can't do it. I love dogs all my life. Now, I fear dogs. See this house right here? Belong to a dude named Spooky. Me and old Vato Loco, that motherfucker was crazy. Nobody fucked with Spooky. Even the cops respected him, you know? We used to watch his house. They gave that motherfucker 230 years in the penitentiary, too. You like dogs? Yeah, 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 yeah. Roddy's are good. Dobermans are better. Spooky used to raise Dobermans. So I'm in the second week of my patrol. I'm rolling out here with my T.O. We pull up at Spooky's house. There's this old man out front named Too Fine, drunk, smiling, beating the shit out of this female Dobie. Beautiful dog, seven months. He's beating the shit out of her with a garden hose. Dog's crying, yelping, and I was raised with dogs, so I'm thinking to get out, do something to this motherfucker. My T.O. says, no, nah, no, nah, it's cool, it's cool. He starts waving. He starts waving. That too fine, right? <laughs> this motherfucker starts waving back at us. Just like smiling and shit with one hand, beating the fuck out the dog with the other. I'm about to lose my mind. My T.O. looks me in the eye. Good old boy, too. Looked me right in the eye and said, said he's teaching the dog to hate niggas. I said, huh? He said, Spooky paid too fine $20 to beat the shit out of the dog to teach him to hate niggas. Police departments across the country right now using canines for drug investigations, foot chases, school assemblies, and much more. But tonight in Tacoma Park, there's a push to get rid of the department's one dog canine unit. ABC7 Montgomery County reporter Kevin Lewis explains why. They're no longer the right thing for our times. When Tacoma Park resident and activist Seth Grimes sees a police dog, he pictures images like this. Police dogs have been used uh, particularly to suppress civil rights demonstrators, black people, African Americans. Grimes is currently hawking a petition to defund the city's one dog canine unit, which made headlines in 2018 when a now retired dog mistakenly attacked a woman walking in front of the CVS just over the D.C. line. U.S. District Judge Henry Hudson sentenced the suspended Atlanta Falcons quarterback to 23 months behind bars for his role in a dogfighting conspiracy. Was it a sentence within the appropriate legal range? It was. Uh, did we at the time believe that Michael was uh, should have received 23 months? We did not. A humbled Vic stood in his black and white striped prison uniform, apologizing to his family and friends for his actions. Man, hold up. You trying to tell me a man got to go to jail that long for killing some dogs? Let me share something with you. Sean Bale got killed in New York City by three police officers. Kill a black man, everybody go home. You kill a dog and your ass got to go to jail. Now something is wrong with this right here. Something is wrong with this right here. What I really want to say, man, fuck them dogs.
context of white supremacy. You will never hear Snoop Dogg, Steve Harvey, and George Clinton on a cows program ever again, much less all on the same broadcast ever, ever again. One more addition, just to make sure we are properly set for the broadcast today. Brancester, the ISIS papers, she writes, Western civilization's religious and secular philosophy pinpoints the activity of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as the point of the fall of man. The fall is the symbolic expression for the genetic mutation to albinism and the negative projections regarding the white-skinned self in a global population where the norm was black or brown skin color. Likewise, today, the modern science of genetics views most spontaneous mutations as negative and deleterious in terms of the welfare of the organism in the environment, at least in the human population. Additional symbolism in Western civilization and culture lends further support to this thesis. For example, the dog, rather than God, proverbially is considered Western man's best friend. This is contrary to the beliefs of skin-pigmented peoples regarding their relationship to God. This Western concept of the dog as man's best friend is linked to the mythology of the founding of Rome. According to this mythology, Rome was founded by two orphans, Romulus and Remus, who were suckled by a wolf. Both the wolf and the dog are canines. These two presumably white infants are said to have founded the state that began Western civilization and culture. When this is decoded, Romulus and Remus are the symbolic representatives of the early albinos who were abandoned by their black mothers in Africa as genetic mutant defectives and, in the process of their northward migration for survival, were left to the dogs suckled by wolves. This decoding explains the worship and love of the dog canine in Western civilization. Western man's affection for the dog is reflected in the fact that in 1978, in New York City, dogs were permitted to put 250,000 pounds of fecal matter on the streets each day, defiling the environment for human beings. And is this love and worship of the dog reflected in the mirror image of the words God and dog, even at this advanced stage in the expression and evolution of Western civilization and culture. Further, as relationships among people become more alienated, Western peoples and those non-white peoples who have been influenced most heavily by Western culture are gaining more satisfaction from feeding, clothing, loving, and kissing canines and in feeding, clothing, loving, and kissing human beings. The ISIS Papers, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, guest on this program a number of times. One of our longer intros for a program only because, wow, this is such rich content. We have been reading White Dog in the Book Club. I think we've said a number of times reading more important than watching television. What a fascinating book. Wow. Wow, <laughs> that is how we ended up here. Make sure that is very clear. Romaine Gary's White Dog. We will continue this Thursday. So we're reading this book, 
which I selected, by the way. Uh, saw the movie, thought it was grand, let's read the book. We're reading the book. One of our listeners, an investor, says, hey, this is super constructive, reveals a lot about racism, what it means to be white. There is a fantastic article you should check out. He sends me this report. I say, wow, the report, give the full title here, <clears throat> Slave Hounds and Abolition in the Americas. I check it out. I say, wow, this is super constructive. He was right. I email one of the co-authors. When I had said the cow's timing has been extraordinary this year, even with all of the ugliness, wow. So I email him. I say, hey, we're reading White Dog. Heard about your report. Sounds awesome. We would love to speak to you on the program. Co-author writes me back and says, oh, wow, how interesting. I'm working on a book on White Dog and the response to the film in the book and what that reveals about race. Stunning. <laughs> uh, the report is stunning. I'm so excited to talk about that, the relationship to the film White Dog and what all this reveals about white supremacy and why we had to sit through all of that with George Clinton and Michael Vick, the rest of that at the beginning. Again, this is the context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade, our broadcast today. I'm super excited. Our guest, he authored that report, Slave Hounds and Abolition in the Americas, co-authored. Uh, we will be whew, super excited. You know, you will have at least the cows listeners will be eagerly awaiting the book on White Dog once it is released. If we get through the Rona, man, we will be in line at the bookstore to get a copy of it. We are delighted to have him with us today joining us live, Dr. Tyler D. Perry. Dr. Perry, you're with us, sir? Yes, sir. Yes, Gus. Thank you so much. It's quite an honor. Happy to be here. Oh, we are happy to have you. So many other things you could have been doing with your time and energy. Uh, for folks uh, who haven't read the report, shame on you. You should check it out. Uh, but for people who are not familiar with your scholarship, if you want to give a little bit of background information before we get started, just on who you are, the work that we are doing, the work that you are doing, excuse Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, I'm a trained historian, but I teach in the African-American and African Diaspora Studies program at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Um, I'm actually a local of Las Vegas, born and raised in the city, but I did my um, graduate work at the University of South Carolina at, um, in Columbia. And um, I've been in academia for about six years. My specialties are largely slavery and American memory, uh, slavery in the African diaspora, with emphasis upon culture and resistance throughout the Americas. So that's my, my brief uh, introduction, but I will say to your listeners, uh, my co-author and I made that report that Gus mentioned absolutely free to the public. So whereas most academic journal articles typically have a paywall to where you have to purchase it, um, we raised funds to make sure everybody has access to it. So just Google that title, you'll be able to find it. Wow. That is important. I'm so glad that you shared that. That is <laughs> Pause right there for white dog, because that is massive. That is, I mean, there are so many components to white supremacy, racism. Access to information is a huge one, especially when you have individuals classified as white who insist they are the ones who are ignorant about racism. Now, the point he just raised, he said that they took time to raise funds. He didn't say that they had a bake sale or anything, but he said they took time <laughs> to get the funds together to make this fantastic report free. That doesn't happen frequently. You have to have access. If you're not 
paying tuition faculty member student at one of these major probably white dominated institutions no maybe you can read the abstract maybe well i was going to say you could maybe physically go to the institution and get the article but not with the rona you can't do that so you can wait and see when your library opens up again but access to these type of reports huge component of white supremacy racism and just for the to make that really solid and tangible the book we're reading right now how we found dr perry white dog now that book bestseller published in 1970 out of print you go on amazon that book might cost you a thousand dollars i was we were a little nervous like i don't know if we're going to be able to read this book or not because we can't get our hands on it we got the rona the libraries are closed they do have it at the library but they're closed and it is expensive trying to get that access access to information is massive that is thank you so much for sharing that and that's by double commendation for you and your co-author for putting the time in to make this report free man you should download it it is spectacular you will learn i took so many highlights i took more highlights in this little like 40 page report than i have in some books uh that we have read um what you are you i was a little confused i looked at your photograph and said oh i think he's black male and then i saw a different photograph i was like oh i'm not sure i'm gonna have to ask what what's uh your racial classification dr perry uh, as far as we know it's all from europe so i am uh i guess i'd be a person classified as white ah. do you ever get uh any confusion or people who you know get a little thrown off about your racial classification or happens division? all the time actually yeah mm. it does and um you know i think that there's an interesting conversation to have about that as far as how race is classified in the united states specifically you know the, the inheritance of the one drop rule and racial passing um I've always made sure to tell people my racial identity when they ask because you know, the Rachel Dolezal moments that, that some people have in this day and age, you know, it's, uh, but yeah, it, it's something that, you know, to be cognizant of uh, when, I, when I write my research and when I'm doing the research and, you know, to ensure that the information is accessible, as, as you mentioned. Mm. If I could ask quickly, what, what do you think it is in terms of what, why people have some confusion about your racial classification? Oh, well, I think sometimes, well, there's probably a variety of things that I think uh, go together in tandem. I think a lot of people, I think there's some misinformation as to who does or does not have an interest in African-American studies or who teaches it. Um, you know, I mean, as a field, African-American studies is predominantly taught by, you know, people of African descent, but there are non-black people of color that teach African-American studies, and there are white scholars. And so when you do have a rare white scholar who maybe doesn't look conventionally white, there might be an assumption that they're partially black. And this is something I think that has happened to me on occasion. I think also, I think when people think of white people they think of blonde-haired blue-eyed individuals or you know red-haired freckled-faced individuals as kind of the conventional form of whiteness but then you have you know southern europeans who don't look conventionally white and i think the assumption within the united states specifically as far as how we've classified what it means to look black are often confused with at least being partially people of african descent 
And according to, you know, American legal codes, if you were an eighth black in Louisiana, you were classified as black and you couldn't marry a person who was classified as white. So I think there's an inheritance from the way Jim Crow was structured as to how people are assessing racial identities and what it means to be black or white as a social construct here. So I, that's maybe a long convoluted answer, but I think there's a variety of factors that probably lead to the confusion. Hmm. Fascinating. Much obliged for the response. Yeah, no uh, we will try to get into the subject matter. So much information uh, for listeners. As I said, I'm having some issues with my computer trying to get it con- uh, fixed. You can dial in, listen to the live broadcast uh, if you have questions or if you just want to listen to the dialogue, the number, new number, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. I'll give out the number a few times as we proceed. Uh, This broadcast, I give out definition for racism at the beginning of every segment. Uh, I use the term racism and the term white supremacy as synonyms. I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Mm-hmm. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Certainly, yeah. I mean, I think one thing that um, – so there's a debate on, you know, racism and the degree to which non-white people can be racist. And what I typically tell people is – it was European colonialism and imperial ambitions that created the modern conception of what we know as race and racism. So Europeans, as classified as white people, were the ones that constructed the definition of power and suppression and subjugation, and then went out of their way very often colonial structure to classify people based upon a a particular set of categories. I mean, this could be skull measurements, regional racism. And so all of this essentially coalesces into a definition that Europeans as constructing race and racism saw themselves as the superior form of people. And so it's no surprise that that legacy inherited in the modern era of the 21st century, that you would have to classify racism as something that white people do, and I appreciate the fact that you said on a global scale because that's been my, um, one of my bigger issues that I teach with my students is to get out of just this parochial, myopic American conception of racism, but that anti-black racism in, in particular is very much a global phenomenon that um, is leading to a lot of issues within the, the global world that we are currently um, living in. Context of white supremacy, uh, global, man, this report, global anti-blackness, racism, white supremacy, we will get to the details. I have to switch a little bit because I was thinking I was going to be talking to a non-white person. That's why that's such a crucial question to figure out who you are talking to. So I'm 
on the fly, switching gears here. So I normally will ask our white guests. Uh, we had a non-white author, uh, and this was five years ago. He wrote a report in a pretty mainstream publication. He was talking about racism specifically. Mm -hmm. And he said that white people are often painfully and sincerely Oh, wait, oh, should I get my notes? I was not even prepared. I wasn't even going to ask. Let me make sure I go back so I can quote him uh, correctly. All right. Here we go again. We'll try. This was non-white person. He uh, gave his quote on racism, and he said, white people are often painfully – I don't even have it in front of me. I'm going to have to go back so I can get the quote. I was not even prepared. That's not being prepared to talk to a white person. I'll come back to that once I pull it up directly. Moving to your report, which I was super prepared to talk about. Wow. Okay. Uh, Slave Hounds and Abolition in the Americas. Uh, you and Charlton W. Yingling, uh, great work to both of you. Uh, how exactly did you get focused on the canine aspect of slavery in the Americas? Yeah, I mean, this is a good question. So. The, the short answer to this is that it's a relatively long story, but he and I were graduate school colleagues, and we were working on separate projects and, and still have our own individual things that we do, but we were good friends. We both studied slavery, emancipation within what is called the Atlantic world, which is just a way to describe the multiple slave societies um, that are produced in the transatlantic slave trade linking Western Africa to Western Europe and North and South America and the Caribbean. And, you know, he is much more of a Latin Americanist. He studies the, what was called Santo Domingo, um, Haiti, now called the Dominican Republic on the, on the one side of the island. And essentially uh, the broader Atlantic, South Atlantic, which includes Portuguese colonies, Brazil, and a variety of Spanish colonies. And then I'm more into the British empire within the Atlantic and the multiple slave societies that were developed in that area, which includes the United States and the expansion of the U.S. South in the 19th century. And to make the long story short, both of us were reading a number of primary sources within our individual specialties. And I was over at his house one day, and I just mentioned that I kept seeing references to all these dogs. And from my earlier research that I was doing, I was looking at um, enslaved people's conceptions of matrimony under slavery. And I would notice that when you know, formerly enslaved men would talk about courtship, they would have to sneak out at night off the plantation to go visit the woman they were interested in, and they would talk about having to evade the dogs. And then reading a number of the memoirs from formerly enslaved people, I just kept seeing bloodhounds, bloodhounds, bloodhounds being referenced. And I mentioned this to him, and he said, that's interesting because I'm seeing references to bloodhounds during these conflicts on the island of Haiti and then on the island of Jamaica, and they kept referring to them as Cuban bloodhounds. And I said, well, that's fascinating. And once again, we're talking about globalization and connections being made particularly within this moment in the Atlantic, 18th and 19th century, we had to think that it was more than just coincidence that dogs kept appearing in sources that were largely detached from each other. So essentially we decide 
during graduate school, right before I had completed my dissertation, to collaborate on a future project. And originally it was just intended to be the article that she read, just a one one-off article, and then we would kind of move on to different things. But we both ended up finding so much in so many different areas, um, whether it be the Caribbean, whether it be South America, or whether it be North America, that we essentially decided to write a book about it. And so the article that you are, you're citing is essentially a microcosm of what the larger book will be, with the exception that the book will go into the 20th century and look at the development of the canine unit in the United States and how that is linked to colonial Africa as well. Mm. Wow. We, I didn't, it was some, I could have taken a long time to explain all the segments that played during the introductory uh, segment. Uh, but one of them was from the documentary film, When We Were Kings. And you heard yes. some of the black people in the Congo talking about George Foreman. He brought his German Shepherd, and it looks exactly like the German Shepherds that Bull Connor and company used in Alabama, and exactly like the German Shepherd from White Dog that we're reading about right now. Yep. Uh, and whew, that is one of the main points I took away from this report. Uh, also, one of our points of emphasis to get people to stop thinking that racism is isolated just to South Africa or just to Alabama. It's just a problem in global system. We read Edward Baptist, read the foot, man, just for the footnotes alone, this is a treat. So in our book club, we also read Edward Baptist. The half has never been told. That's, oh, in the footnotes, great source. Mm -hmm. yep. He talked about in that book how white slavers would swap notes. They would get together and exchange torture techniques and what's the best way to control your niggers? And we've got this new contraption here and you can torture them this way. And I thought that was super important. Again, the white people are supposed to be ignorant about racism, but the same thing comes up here. White people swapping dogs and the best techniques. Got to get the Cuban bloodhound. That's the one that will get the niggers if they run. Wow. Global enterprise, the global business of controlling black, controlling, terrorizing, terrorizing black bodies. Uh, so let's read a little bit from this superb report. So you all write, and then we'll get your response. Let's see. This is on page very early when you all are kind of setting the the table. Page seven. Well, from a journal, so page is kind of page seventy-two, I guess. Uh, the Canis familiaris, willingly or not, was an interspecies shaper of racial hierarchy and slavery. Slave dogs subdued human property, enforced legal categories of subjugation, and built efficient economic regimes. The common refrain among slaves of being treated worse than a dog was no hyperbole, as many blacks were made subservient by a lesser species that was well-maintained by the white power it fortified. You say white privilege, the white power it fortified, training dogs to attack only blacks, instantiated racism as planters interpreted this as confirmation that even dogs knew the supposed immutable inferiority of blackness. Great kind of laying 
the table in so many different ways in terms of the dogs being treated better than black people and training them so that it seems as though the dogs are even aware. Oh, this is a nigra. Just can you talk about how this kind of reinforces the whole system of white power and slavery? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that, you know, my co-author and I were being very deliberate in showcasing, and, you know, my co-author threw in white power. He wanted that phrase in there because that was crucial to kind of establishing this precedent for how we understand racism and its manifestations up to today in the 21st century. And so one thing we were trying to push through within that particular um, quote that you've cited was how deliberate this process was to help people understand that the construction of race and manifestations of racism as a method of control, subjugation, and, and in some cases annihilation was not just strictly a human-to-human -human phenomenon. We often think of racism and race as existing within just points of contact between human beings. And of course, it will be Europeans who will construct these categories and try to develop a system of white supremacy using a hierarchical, hierarchical idea of race and constructions of racism. But there was always an attached aspect of this, that one thing that scholars of animal history have tried to push through is that what human beings do tends to be reinforced by how they use their animals during that process. So the expansion of slave systems throughout the Atlantic world and the colonization of sub-Saharan Africa is largely going to be done in tandem with humans, horses, and dogs. Now we know a lot about horses because for scholars of colonial Latin America in particular, the horse was an introduction to the Americas. It was not something that was found um, within that part of the hemisphere or that side of the hemisphere. Dogs not had as much attention paid to them for the roles in which they, they were utilized for. But if you read the actual statements by colonists and priests who came to the Americas, particularly as they are colonizing during the period of indigenous um, the, the colonial period when they were um, exterminating the indigenous peoples, they were deliberately referencing the way in which the conquistadors, the Spanish first, were using dogs for absolutely brutal purposes. Dogs weren't just there as companions on the voyage. They were war dogs. And there are precedents within Europe for the use of dogs during warfare, but what makes this process different is that the war dogs are used in tandem with the development of racist thoughts. So dogs are going to be tools that are deliberately used to not only attack non-white peoples, but to reinforce the constructions of white power that would exist and be cemented within the Americas at that point, and then later during the scramble for Africa in the late 19th century. So, I mean, I guess to kind of wrap all of this up is what we were trying to do was to show that if Europeans could convince themselves that dogs could sense race and they could train a dog to demonstrate this idea that they were sensing a racial difference in the person they were trying to capture, 
then for them that actualized the racial category, it made it real. Because if an animal could sense racial differences, that would then reinforce the assumptions that were being developed during the rise of scientific racism in the 19th century in that race was a biological distinction between white, white and black rather than what is commonly viewed as now as a social construction. Extremely important information, context of white supremacy. Uh, just moving down a little bit further uh, in the report, uh, and there's so much talk uh, in U.S. discussion of slavery, really throughout enslavement of black people in the world, uh, of breeding. Uh, they'll talk about breeding. We had uh, the sublets on the program, the American Slave Coast, uh, and they talked about breeding and, and having even plantations for that very purpose, uh, New Orleans being a hot spot, some of the areas. Uh, but talking about breeding dogs, specifically for the purpose of tracking black people and how much and how specific detail was a, the amount of detail paid to, oh, what type of dog this is, and this is the type of dog that I use as a track. I mean, fascinating. You all right. As chattel slavery expanded in the Americas, slave hunters raised working dogs like the Cuban bloodhound, later mating, with, mating it with other breeds, to increase the spread of coercive canines to intimidate and attack enslaved people. Skipping just a few lines. Through breeding and training, slave hunters believed that they had conditioned enmity between their dogs and black people, premised upon innate and perceptible racial difference, racializing the animal's sensory capabilities in which they could supposedly smell hear or see racial difference resonated with concepts of discernibly scented bodies posited by southern slaveholders including thomas jefferson still alumnus of the university of virginia i am good old tj uh, but fascinating again the breeding of black people the breeding of enslaved people they say and then breeding dogs, proudly doing so. It just it gave me a whole way of thinking about how we'll talk about what type of papers a dog has and what stock this dog has. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of this can be explained by the idea that the expansion of Atlantic chattel slavery is predicated upon the ownership of bodies. And as you mentioned, the ownership of bodies of people of African descent, enslaved bodies, people that were not legally declared to have personhood, could not own anything, and could be sold at the master's whim. But the ownership of bodies of canines was also part of this process, so much so that when we talk about the transatlantic markets, um, what becomes particularly important for your listeners to understand is as I, as I hinted toward earlier, none of this is isolated. And as you mentioned, I mean, as Baptist writes about in his book, this exchange of knowledge as to how to brutalize a particular person. Enslavers were very open about this particular process, and particularly they were very open about it when people would 
visitors upon their particular plantation. They would showcase dogs, and this even has some persistence in the U.S. South today in how there is this love for, you know, a family dog or a, blood, or a southern bloodhound is kind of the quintessential figure of the region for hunting. But in the 18th and 19th centuries, what you would find is essentially a particular type of bloodhound that some would argue is not really a bloodhound at all. So the, the key figure, for those that haven't actually read the article yet, is the Cuban bloodhound is the primary exemplar of how this entire process is instigated. And as far as our research has covered, at least by the mid-18th century, you have a specific breed of dog known as the Cuban bloodhound that looks very much like a mastiff, but is marketed as a dog that, you know, as the statement you, you read hints toward, was crossbred with different types of canines to produce what you might call a super dog, for lack of a better description. Um, breeders were being very intentional to try to introduce traits into this dog's um, genetics. So, for instance, a mastiff is known as a very powerful, very strong dog, but they're not particularly fast and they don't smell as well as a bloodhound does. So, in the dog breeder's mind, if you're going to train a dog to hunt humans, you have to take a very powerful dog like a mastiff and interbreed it with a dog that has a better you know, olfactory sense or a better sense of smell. So a bloodhound might be crossbred with that dog. But if, then if you want to introduce you know, aspects of speed to that dog, you might introduce a greyhound into it. So I guess one thing I should note is that the modern conception of dog breeds is really a 19th century construction. Um, most of the breeds that we, we know of today are actually relatively new in the grand scheme of things. And so what it seems like the Cuban dog breeders were doing within this slave society was doing some early experimentation with creating a dog that could be used for a very specific purpose, and that purpose was hunting people of African descent. And they believed that they had created a dog that could have a genetic inheritance to detect race and racial difference and essentially attack a person of African descent whenever they entered a room, which is why we start out with that vignette of kind of a Scottish traveler coming into Jamaica and writing about this peculiar dog that seems to have um, some type of natural inclination to attack a black person. And this was something that was very much believed by European colonists as well as enslaved people. So Solomon Northup will write about the, the southern bloodhound or the southern dog as this peculiar breed of dog that seems very much set upon ferocity against enslaved people who are trying to run away. And he even goes to note, he says, they are different than the northern dogs. So we already have a perception amongst people, both black and white at this point, that there is something about these dogs that are trained to hunt enslaved people that, is, that makes them different, makes them more ferocious. And essentially this is a carryover from the conceptions of the 18th century dog breeders in Cuba to where their training regimen for this particular breed essentially consisted of forcing a black man to abuse the dog since puppyhood, and then when they declared the dog ready to be sold 
or grown up enough or strong enough to be placed upon the market for eager buyers throughout the Atlantic, they do a final test to where they force the black man to run away, and if the dog can catch him, tear him apart in time, the dog was considered ready for sale. And I should say in the context of the, ninth, or the 18th century, sales for the Cuban bloodhound explode because black people throughout the Atlantic are resisting European encroachments, sometimes successfully, um, but oftentimes unsuccessfully. And we can talk a little bit about the distinctions if you'd like to, but the, the premise here is that this was not by accident. Once again, this is very deliberate, and it was very much transatlantic. So the Cuban bloodhound will be the quintessential figure that will be exported to other areas um, that are occupied by white colonists who are heavily investing in black chattel slavery at this moment. And this will continue up to the Civil War. Um, you will find black Union soldiers talking about killing dogs on the battlefield, which brought a number of them great satisfaction because of the generations of abuse they had endured from them. But then it will continue and perpetuate throughout Jim Crow, particularly during the convict leasing system and the rise of the penitentiary, which is largely incarcerating black men. And then, of course, um, in the 1950s and the 1960s, you'll see a rise in the canine unit and the introduction of the German Shepherd as the quintessential police dog. Wow. So I guess I'll, I'll probably slowly pick out the things from the introduction, the introductory clip as we touch on them in the dialogue. So also in that introductory piece, uh, Academy Award-winning performance from Denzel Washington, the mm -hmm. deleted scenes from Training Day, which I think is fascinating in a movie that is pretty crass and features Snoop Dogg, they deleted the scene where Alonzo, that's his name, his character's name, Denzel, is talking, and he says that his T.O., they pull up, they see this fella, black guys out beating the dog with the garden hose. He's going to go do something, and his training officer, and he says, a good old boy. Tell no, 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 no. Leave him along. He's training the dog to hate niggers. Now, I didn't particularly like that movie, but I thought, wow, why would you take that scene out? Like, well, I, didn't, I first saw that scene years ago. I didn't know about this. I wasn't studying racism, didn't know the whole history of dogs and all that. But we, it immediately resonated like, I bet that's true. I bet they do that sort of thing. Right. All these years later, now I read this like, oh, man, I thought of that. And now even, in fact, before I even get there, why do you think, I don't know if you saw that scene, saw the movie, all that, but why do you think they would snatch that scene out? They went through all that trouble to record, get Denzel to do all that, and then they don't put that in the movie. Yeah, I mean, I'll say that's unfortunate that they took that scene out because that, that would have been probably one of the, the main conversation pieces that would have been actually productive, you know. I mean, because a lot of people, myself included, had problems with that movie when it came out because, you know, it takes Denzel to play that type of role before he, I think that was his first award that, that he had won for his acting job. And so, yeah, I, I mean, the degree to which why they took it out, I'm not sure, but it does go back to the, perhaps the controversies that swirled around white dog, which you mentioned earlier, in that the interspecies violence and anti-blackness 
does make people legitimately uncomfortable. I mean, I've talked to a number of people, even historians who study brutality and anti-blackness for a living, that have said that they had to turn their face in that scene during Django when the dog is attacking the man and killing him. And so there's something about the conditioning of the dog to be anti-black and the brutality that dogs can inflict upon people in a racist, in a, in a move that's motivated by racism that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. But, you know, I, I had not actually heard that scene until you played it. And so I'm glad you mentioned that it was a deleted scene because that's something that I'll, I'll look further into um, as I'm looking at the book. Because one thing we're going to do is probably end it on a note to where we're talking about legacies. And I think that I guess one thing that is related to this entire concept and question is that I have given this talk in various forms for a few years now. Um, we've been unfortunately working slowly on this project because you know, we're both chasing tenure at our institutions. But we, um, I've been giving this talk for a little while, and there hasn't been a single conference or gathering that I've gone to where people don't come up to me and say, you know, I have a story for you. And it, it relates to this idea that there is a belief that dogs can be trained to be racist. And sometimes it's white Southerners that come up to me, you know, who kind of disavow their families because of racism. And they say, yeah, I had cousins who trained their dogs that way and they believed that they would react in the way that they told them to based upon race. So, I mean, it's interesting that they would take that part out because I think it would have been thoroughly relatable. And I think for white people who saw the movie, it could have been a moment of reflection because not enough white people fully appreciate or understand the gravity of this situation that the presence of dogs, particularly dogs owned by white people, and the gentrification of neighborhoods is perceived as a symbol of racial subordination and racist oppression. And I think a lot of white people don't quite understand that, but if they understood the history that, of how dogs have been a piece of racism and racial constructions for a few centuries by this point, I think it would at the very least start a constructive dialogue. Uh. White people aren't ignorant about racism. I think the words uh, deliberate and intentional have been used more in today's broadcast than most others for a good reason. Uh, the, the other thought I had when you were giving, and this was your initial response about the explosive sales of the Cuban bloodhounds, and because black people are resisting, they're trying to get away, so we got to get biopower. I thought that was such a great word in, in describing yeah. these hounds. we got to get biopower to help us control these black bodies and specifically training them, going through, well, we want them to be strong, we need to be fast, and we need to have a good nose. So they can, I mean, that is, and specifically, we get a black, but we do what Denzel Washington said all these centuries ago and in a different hemisphere and all the rest of it. We do what he said, and then to prove it, we get a black man, get a black male, get him out to run, and bang, see if the hound goes to, to tear him. To sh I mean, it reminds me, I certainly want to get in a question, or a few actually, about white dog, but it reminded me there are a lot of striking moments in the book and film, but the book specifically, 
they talk about the black trainer at Noah's Ark. He is going to poison the dog, put strychnine and a lot of it in his food. The dog refused to eat it because it came from black hands. I was stunned. In fact, I said, this Romaine Gary, a lot of people think he's a liar. In fact, he did lie. So we should be thinking as we're reading this, maybe he lied. Is this truthful, blah, blah, blah. And I said, man, is that true? I've never seen a dog, like, turn down food. Man, as I've done more reading and looked at Tyler Wall's report and everything, wow, maybe they could train a dog to turn down food. Like, I don't know. Is that... Is that believable? Do you think after all this training? Yes, you could have a dog that absolutely would attack a black person, and if you couldn't attack them, you know, I certainly wouldn't even take a food from you. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, dogs, dogs, and, you know, I, this is where I get into territory where I am less knowledgeable on the details. But one thing that does become very clear is that dogs are heavily perceptible to human emotions and human conditions, largely because dogs have been domesticated with human beings for tens of thousands of years. They're, they are our oldest friend, so to speak. And so there, there's two scenarios envisioned under which dogs can act under an idea of, you know, deliberate racist attacks. On the one hand, with police dogs, what often seems to happen is that the, tr- the handler themselves has some form of internalized racism that is either consciously or subconsciously being enacted. And so when you see the disproportionate bite rates, there's both deliberate attacks that officers are using, using dogs as vehicles of terror, and that was made manifest in the, Fer- the Ferguson report done by the DOJ. But then there's also handlers who become nervous around a particular suspect and the dog sensing that nervousness just attacks. And these people are overwhelmingly non-white within the the records that I've been able to look at. So, but then dogs can be trained with specific traits. I mean, the whole idea of dog breeds as we know them was a deliberate system and tactic under which people were creating dogs for specific purposes. I mean, the pit bull gets its name because it was a dog that was bred to go into a pit with a bull and basically tackle the bull, latch onto it, not let go until the bull expired. So when we look at dogs and the traits that they carry, a number of geneticists, particularly those who focus upon dogs, say that genetics are passed down within dogs. And they actually can be relatively hard to get rid of once they are within the dog. I mean, it takes maybe three generations for a dog to fully lose perhaps a genetic trait that it, that it carried over from, you know, breeding that happened generations ago. But I say all of that to give the impression that, I mean, I can't, I can't definitively say from a scientific perspective that I know this to be true, but given the multiple anecdotes that I've received from people after I've given these talks, there does seem to be a method under which dogs can be trained to react toward certain people. And I had, so I'll give an anecdote here, which will kind of maybe qualify the statement. I had a, I gave this talk in Harlem probably a year ago, and I had a woman come up to me. She's a black woman. And she said that she adopted a dog, didn't know where it was from. It was, I think it was a pit bull. And she noticed that the dog was fine with her. She was fine with 
the white or the dog was fine with the white friends that came over, but she lived in an area that was largely populated by black men. And every time they would sit on the porch and a black man would walk by, the dog would just go crazy, um, almost inconsolably crazy, and try to attack the individual. And she, you know, she didn't know, like, at this point what was going on. So long story short, she calls the place that she adopted it from, and they look up the dog's record, and they say that dog came from the South. And that's all the information they had, that it came from the South. And so whatever happened to that dog seems to have conditioned it to react negatively toward a perception or toward what it perceived to be a black man. Now, I should say that dogs don't conceptualize race in the same way humans do, because humans are the one, or white people are the ones who developed the idea of racial difference. But there does seem to be some legacy under which dogs are still able to be deliberately bred or conditioned to have a conception of racial difference and will act on it even when unprovoked. <clears throat> Context of white supremacy. Uh, super informative, but this is extremely depressing uh, as a black male. Uh, mm, the yeah. number is 720-716-7300. The code 564 Nine four three pound. Press star six one if you have a question for Doctor Tyler D. Perry. Uh, I mean, super depressing to be in the midst of yeah. Corona and all of these problems. And I was resistant. I was resistant to in White Dog when Romaine Gary the anecdote about the dog won't take food from a black person and is starving to death literally because I'm not going to take food from a nigger. Uh, I was like, that can't be true. And then. I mean, just the dog is trained, and that's in white dog. He said it several times that this dog, black males. He didn't say black people. Right. He didn't say black males and females. He didn't say black children. He said black males, and that's in white dog. And that was another one. I said, that can't be true. How does the dog know the difference between a male and a female? Like, are you kidding me? Like, what if it's a transgender person? Like, how does the dog know, oh, this one's got a penis. Yeah, get that one. Like, that can't be true, but then you keep hearing the same thing, and I don't want to be one of those people that is resistant to something just because you would like it to not be true. So then I read, you all write, several Cuban slave-catching dogs, dog packs, excuse me, not singular, dog packs, became yeah. legendary for their ferocity. One overseer near Havana even having his dogs bite slaves' genitals. Yeah. Visitors to the island surmised that the dogs were conditioned to hold anti-black feeling from puppyhood. One traveler observed that Cuban trainers forced black men to abuse the dogs daily by whipping them while they were chained to the ground and simultaneously inciting the dogs to bite the men in reprisal. When the dogs had acquired a perfect hatred of their tormentor, the black trainer ran to the woods and dared the dog to chase him. You all can figure out the West. I mean, black misandry, say that term a lot. I was not thinking I was going to be saying that again, but black misandry, even with the canines? Yeah, I mean, and this is a, this is a good point as far as kind of the focus on men 
And part of the reason, perhaps, is that men seem to have been the most likely to run away. And scholars have done research on why that is. And a lot of it comes down to the fact that enslaved women tended to have children that they were attached to that lived with them. And, you know, under the traditions of the U.S. South, um, any child born by an enslaved woman typically stayed with the woman. Um, Now, if if a father had children that lived with him, he might be less likely to run away. Um, It was pretty extraordinary when a mother with children ran away. This is in the the narrative of Harriet Jacobs, Instance of the Life of a Slave Girl, where she talks about the kind of magnificent feats that she had to go through in order to actually escape because she had two children that still lived in the U.S. South and, and under slavery. But one thing that we have recently done Um, is try to review the evidence to see how black women are also factoring into this broader narrative. And one thing that I am finding on my end, and I'm reading what are called the WPA narratives, which are essentially a large collection of oral testimonials recorded during the Great Depression era of the last living African Americans who were enslaved in the U.S. South. And so they give their testimonies and there are a number of them that talk about black women also being brutalized within this process. But as far as the training techniques, it does seem to be specifically targeting black men. So we are developing more in regards to gender and the degree to which women are factoring into a number of these narratives, but we do certainly see um, a deliberate attack Black misandry, as, as you've appropriately called it, um, against um, enslaved men specifically. They were deemed the, the largest threat. Mm. Context of white supremacy. I feel like our book, uh, our book club is really sparkling. We read uh, Harriet Jacobs uh, in the book club uh, okay. as well. Like, gee, with reading more important than watching television. Speaking of the book club, my top 10, The Delectable Negro, Human Consumption and Homoeroticism in U.S. Slave Culture, the late Vincent Woodard. Uh, Spectacular read, uh, comes up all the time. Uh, when People ask for books to read on racism. The Delectable Negro, Human Consumption, Homoeroticism in U.S. Slave Culture. Uh, immediately came to mind. I was flipping up. So this is from a journal, so the pages. Uh, but you write, uh, you all write, some slaveholders debased the sustenance of slaves by prioritizing the needs of dogs. One ex-slave, John Andrew Jackson, recalled his experience in South Carolina competing for food against the plantation's mastiff, Old Rip. His mistress gave slaves only a dry peck of corn and a pint of salt expressly stating that she would never give the Negras any meat. In contrast, Jackson noted that Old Rip was fed with the meat that we would have given anything to possess. This treatment of the dog symbolized how masters further demoralized enslaved people by weaponizing hunger. That is right out of the delectable Negro. Uh, Weaponizing hunger in favor of their non-human labor. So critically, and you see that same treatment. Michael Vick has to go to jail. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, thoughts on this passage? Because I thought that was super important as well, that the dog is more valuable than the black person. Yeah, well, we, we inserted this particular story um, because we wanted to provide historical context for a number of people who are doing the research about dehumanization and even further animalization. So, the, and, you know, as, as um, you started off with the quote, this idea of being treated worse than a dog, you, you find that colloquialism stated so often in Southern speech patterns of African-Americans, particularly in the early 20th century. And we had wondered, you know, is this, is this something that could be seen as more literal? And so as we started to investigate the plantation landscape and the space, one thing that started to strike us, and, and me in particular studying the U.S. South, was there are two scenarios that, that seem to be going on. On the one hand, there would be specialized slave hunters that would advertise their skills throughout the U.S. South as a way for them to invest within the system of chattel slavery, even if they themselves didn't own an enslaved person. This was still a way for them to make money off of the system in that they counted on enslaved people to run away and for them to catch them to sustain their livelihood. On the other hand, what I think surprised me was the fact that there were some slave owners who purchased dogs themselves with the expectation that they were mm -hmm. training those dogs to catch the very enslaved people that also lived on that plantation. So there's a psychological dimension that's operating here, too, that I think um, John Andrew Jackson is expressing, is imagining sharing a space with an animal that is treated better than you as a way to mock your own personhood. And in this case, it's, it's by the uh, mistress, I believe. And so the psychological dimension is that imagining sharing a space with an animal that is being treated better than you and is trained to catch you should you have the idea of running away. And if they catch you, they will brutalize and mutilate your body, and you will carry those scars for the rest of your life. And a number of enslaved people talk about this, that you know, they would pull up their pant leg and they would show people the scars and they would say, this is from the bite of the canine. And so one thing that we, we started the paper off as is that the lash and the shackles are kind of the quintessential instruments of brutalization within the U.S. South. And this is really Edward Baptist, the half has never been told thesis is, you know, the whipping machine as this symbolic method under which there was discipline being constantly enacted against enslaved people. We took that concept and said that the dog was also just as much a factor within this process, and one could argue simply by how often they are referenced that they might have even been even worse as far as a sentient being, a mobile thing that could be sent after you, and if they catch you, they could be uncontrollable. And you even see this in, in modern um, police dog videos where the animal attacks a suspect and the handler loses control of that particular dog. So if the dog is trailing you as you're running through the U.S. South at night and that dog catches you and say the slave hunter is, you know, hundreds of yards away, 
it's you and that dog for at least a few minutes, and dogs can be incredibly vicious and do a lot of damage. And if you survive that attack, you will look at those scars every day of your life, typically on your arm or on your legs or on your, on your neck, where people will see it, and that, that will be a mark. So we talk about lashings and the marks left by the whip. We don't talk enough about the marks left by the dogs and this deliberate training technique that ensured that if a person survived a dog attack, they were at least reminded of that debasement every single day because the dog would inflict maximum damage against them. Context of white supremacy. Reading this sort of information, in my view, calls out the, the blasphemy of using incorrect terms when what we're talking about is terrorism, mm-hmm. white supremacy, the greatest form of terrorism in the known universe. Two quick questions, and I'll get to uh, listeners. I've never seen the term before in reading your work, nigger dog. I had never seen that term before, new one on me, learning something every day, system of white supremacy. So in your research, have you seen, heard of any dogs that are trained to attack Asian people, Latin people, Jews, gay people, anybody? Is there any other group where they have dogs that are specifically trained to attack this group of people? Very good question. So what I can say is that there have been dogs used against all of those groups, but this form of terrorism, which you you correctly say, uh, this form of anti-black terrorism is unique for how consistent consistent it was and how many people bought into it. There was an effort, I think, during World War II in which they were trying to train dogs specifically to attack Japanese people, and they used, um, I think they used Japanese Americans as the, I forget what they're called, but the, the people who wear the suits and allow the dogs to attack them. They tried to use them, but as far as the research unfolds, it was largely seen as something that didn't work. Like the dogs just didn't latch onto it and it, it was largely deemed a failure, and, and they moved on from the experiment. There were German shepherds that were used in concentration camps, and a number of testimonials from Jewish people do talk about the ferocity of those dogs and the deliberate use of them in attacking people within the camps, but there was never a conception that the German shepherd was an anti-Jewish dog whereas there was a conception that the shepherd dog was used specifically to subjugate people of African descent. So I think the the important thing to note here is that dogs can be used against any group of people, and they can even be... They can, even, they can even be attempted to be trained to attack a specific group. But all the historical record reveals is that the, the linkage between dogs and anti-blackness is the only one that remains consistent throughout the centuries. There were dogs used against indigenous people, for instance, but there was never a conception that a dog was simply anti-indigenous, whereas under the regimes of slavery and then the after effects of it after 1865 is that there were dogs 
that were consistently trained to be anti-black. So the anti-black form of racism in this interspecies dimension is unique in world history. In world history, in world history, in world history. Last question before I get our listeners, because uh, I thought this was important. I'd heard before, just, man, this is such fascinating research. We talked before they had specific laws not allowing black people to have firearms uh, mm-hmm. during the 19th century, uh, even changing those laws uh, with the Black Panther Party in the 1960s, around the right. time Romaine Gary was writing White Dog, Uh, You all right. Although some slaves themselves had companion animals, slaveholding states often criminalized black dog ownership on the grounds that it constituted possession of a weapon. Really? Yeah. I mean, and this is something that he and I are trying to develop a little more uh, because the statements aren't always clear as to why they would dispossess black people of dog ownership, but the fact that black people are the only ones referenced within the particular legal codes does suggest that there was an innate fear amongst the white population, knowing how they use dogs, that there was a conception that the dogs could perhaps be retrained for nefarious purposes on the part of the black population. So it's the, the legal codes are less clear as to why, but it does, it does seem to be the case that from testimonials of enslaved people and formerly enslaved people that they could manipulate the dogs. This is part of their daily resistance. And if you were going to run away, there are some people that state that they had worked for months on that dog to ensure they weren't followed. So I think that the assumption can be safely made that withholding dog ownership from a subjugated people ensures that their subjugation is perpetuated simply because, especially if we're talking about rural areas, dogs are crucial to people's survival as far as the ways in which they're able to hunt. And then that also hunting can lead to yielding a larger surplus of things for sale and make one a, you know, a more efficient um, I guess, more efficient investor within the particular economy. So I think withholding dogs from black people was another way to withhold their full participation in citizenship and their socioeconomic advancement. Mm. The man's best friend, that's the way I've been saying it. Wow, you can't even have a dog. Uh, let's see. I got to do my obligatory timestamp. Let's see. So it is 3:15 a.m. Norway time. Uh, our first caller uh, in Norway, Silent Warrior. Uh, if you have a question for Dr. Perry, should be with us. He's been uh, reading right along with us for White Dog, so he should be informed, ready to roll. Let's see if I can get your line here. Okay. All right, I think I got his line here. Let's see. Oh. 
line is almost open. Let's see. Seems like the switchboard is going a little slowly. I'll get you. All right. Are you with the Silent Warrior? Line should be open. Are you there, Silent Warrior? Are you there? Silent Warrior, we'll try one more. If we, we're not hearing you, if you have your microphone or headset together, we're not hearing you. All right. We'll give you a second or two, and then I'll try again. Be in Toronto, did you have a question for Dr. Perry? You should be with us. Be in Toronto. Yes. Thank you, Gus. Um, greetings to you. Um, greetings to Dr. Kerry oh, and Colin. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a minute. I had a, I had a highlight for you. I was going to ask a question specifically for you, and I said, oh, I'm going to leave that one for beep, bang, and I got it quickly. All right, so let me get this one, then you can go with your question if you have anything to say for this. So uh, our guest, Dr. Perry, and his co-author, they write, Escaping the Bloodhounds Barking and Canadian Safety, or oh, let me make sure I give you the full context. Yes, we'll give you the full context. Even black folk songs celebrate the promise of Canadian freedom from slave dogs, as Harriet Tubman apparently sang. Farewell, O oh master. Don't think hard of me. I'm traveling to Canada where all the slaves are free. The hounds are baying on my track. Old master comes behind, resolved that he will bring me back before I cross the line. Mary Shad, the first black female editor in North America, ran the refugee North newspaper Provincial Freeman. It happily reported in 1855 that their community in Toronto was enjoying significant growth directly from the South, the fugitive slave bill and bloodhounds notwithstanding. Furthermore, the newspaper rebuffed possible U.S. territories territorial acquisitions in Canada, insisting that the baying of the bloodhounds shall never echo in our woods. Escaping the bloodhounds barking and Canadian safety were unifying commonalities for the growing black population and the scathing reprimands to American readers. The liberty-loving and righteous spirit of equality and brotherhood over Canada contrasted with the well-fed bloodhounds and hell-deserving marshals of the United States, said the provincial freeman. We will stop there. Now, be in Canada if you have any thoughts on that or your own questions. Proceed. Yes, I, I do have um, lots of thoughts on that. Um, it's uh, romanticism. It's... Um, uh, hmm. It's, it's uh, let me just put it into context here. In Canada, uh, the first Underground Railroad was not from um, the United States to Canada or formerly known as British North America. The first one was actually um, slaves escaping from British North America, what was then known, to the U.S., um, to some parts of the U.S. where the slavery was not being um, done at the time. Uh, so uh, the escaping of the bloodhounds and uh, Canada being uh, the land of freedom, 
no. <laughs> in fact, what was happening was that um, many of the uh, white settlers or squatters here um, were turning, were returning the um, uh, individuals escaping from slavery back to um, the U.S. at the time. In some cases, they were holding um, escaped uh, individuals from slavery into their to their own, forcing them to work labor, um, even though slavery was abolished um, in 1834. And in addition to that, even the uh, fathers of Confederacy here in Canada for the uh, for 1867, the so-called fathers, many of them were slave owners that not only owned plantations in the states um, or in Canada, they also owned, um, or British North America at the time, um, just slightly before it became Canada, they also owned plantations in the states. So when there was abolishment here in Canada, when uh, the British Empire decided to so-called abolish slavery, um, the uh, white uh, slave owners received reparations for that. And when they uh, abolished slavery in the States, they also received reparations for that. So they, they received repula- reparations multiple times because oftentimes, too, they would also have plantations in uh, the West Indies, such as uh, the first Prime Minister of Canada, uh, John A. Macdonald. Um, his wife was had a plantation in Jamaica, and a lot of the wealth was accrued from Jamaica into Canada. But I digress. I can give you a a whole fascinating history on that. Canada um, loves to create an image that they're the land of freedom, they're the ones that are helping others, and, and they're just as much a part of the evil cartel of fleshmongering as any other um, European-created um, cartel that has uh, involved in the same against non-white people, in particular black people. I'll, I'll stop it right there because I, I can go on and give a whole long dissertation. Um, my question is, in, in regards to um, the representation of the dog, um, because for a very long time it has been associated as a representation of white people or, or the power of white people. And it, it kind of harkens back to um, the fight, the, the main event between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman and how George Foreman had dogs. And this was to happen in Africa. I forgot which country in Africa but it was to happen in Africa. And I remember that the way that the image was being done was that in this case, George Foreman was being represented as white because of the fact that he was utilizing the dogs um, uh, as representation of the white man, whereas Muhammad Ali was for the, the, the black population, even though both gentlemen were designated black according to this white supremacist system. So it's just quite interesting as to, like, has there been any information as to why the dog was chosen as a representation of white people? Um, because they seem to have this 
this very, very long connection or, or history with with this particular animal. So I was wondering if there was um, if there was any um, further insight around that. And uh, thank you so much. I'll take the answer offline. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. I mean, that's that's a great question. So I think there's multiple things operating at the same time. And your thoughts on Canada, just very quickly as an aside, reminded me of um, Robin Maynard's excellent book, Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present, which really does um, throw open the gates as far as exposing kind of this narrative of Canadian multiculturalism. And so just to maybe, I, I do want to touch on that just for a second, then I'll get to the question more about George Foreman and Zaire. Um, the way that people who escaped from slavery in the U.S. South envisioned Canada was that at the very least it had different laws than the United States. And this, and this became very pertinent after 1850 when the Fugitive Slave Act was passed, the, the revised version of the Fugitive Slave Act, which determined that it was now legal to capture anybody that had settled in the North under a state law that declared them free. So federal law allowed people to go above the Mason-Dixon line and kidnap people and sell them back into slavery. And so basically, it's not to romanticize Canada, but the way that formerly enslaved people viewed Canadian law was that at the very least it wasn't the United States. And really this is a transnational phenomenon when you look at the black abolitionist movement. A number of people, or not a number, but some people will go to the British Isles uh, to escape the, North, the United States because they weren't even safe in the North. People would also go south into Mexico because slavery had been abolished there earlier than the United States. And people would go north into Canada and develop communities um, that were largely seeing um, Canadian law as preferable at the very least to whatever the United States was offering because the U.S. was catering to the southern system, particularly white southerners at that time. And I think it's important, I mean, the reason why we use the bloodhound is because the bloodhound will factor in as a symbol of white supremacy, that it will be very deliberate in that even things are attributed to Harriet Tubman. We don't know whether or not she actually did or didn't say them, but they would be attributed to her by using the bloodhound as a symbol of biopower used by white people to suppress, contain, and brutalize people of African descent who were seeking their freedom. Um, on your note about or question about the figure of the dog as an expression of whiteness, I think it goes back to very much this idea that colonization and imperialism happen simultaneously with humans and their dogs, and particularly Europeans and their dogs. So there, as far as we know, domestication of the canine happens in Eurasia and in particular amongst European groups. And so Europeans had domesticated dogs for thousands of years by the time colonization begins or is amplified by the 15th century, 1492 being the classic date used to describe Christopher Columbus, who also, it should be stated, brought dogs with him on that um, Atlantic voyage. So, I think in the case of George Foreman, 
what we are finding here is it wasn't just that he brought a dog. He brought the German shepherd that was used by the Belgian police, the colonizers in that area, as explicitly manifested for anti-black state-sanctioned terrorism against the indigenous population. And Foreman, I, from, what I, from what I recollect about that entire scenario, is he saw it as a mistake. Uh, he actually didn't really know the rules from what he says before going to Zaire in that there was a suppression of black people within that area used that, and the, and the German shepherd, sometimes called the Belgian shepherd, uh, was deliberately used by that police force. So in the same way that enslaved people talked about the bloodhounds as a specific type of canine that represented white supremacy and you could argue whiteness more broadly conceived, for many people throughout colonial Africa and even post-colonial Africa, um, the, the shepherd dog would also manifest that same thought process. And you could even argue, uh, I think correctly, within the United States as well, particularly by the, by, by the mid-1960s, the German shepherd as the police dog would also elicit that type of uh, perception too. So that, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty long process as to how dogs become associated with whiteness but there are a number of different examples of modern forms of gentrification that are occurring to where you start to see spaces once occupied by underrepresented and marginalized groups being gentrified by predominantly white populations, and you start to see this proliferation of dog parks in these, in these areas. And so it's what some people argue a, a neo colonialism or a new form of colonialism that's occurring to where the landscape is actually being shaped to cater to dogs that are predominantly owned by white people. Much obliged to be in Toronto. They have uh, dog parks plenty uh, here in Seattle, Washington. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted just man, I, I said the subject matter is so rich. I think we got Silent Warrior in Norway. It is three thirty AM in Norway. I think we did get get him. But I said uh Dr. Perry's work for the footnotes alone is spectacular. So he references uh another spectacular article. Just listen to the title. For the very existence of civilization, the police dog and racial terror. I bet you they don't have a paywall for this one. I bet you probably have to pay uh, to get this one. Uh, but they're right. This is Tyler Wall. Uh, he writes, this is about the German Shepherd. The preferred dog was the breed problematically known as German Shepherd and Alsatian. I think that's how you say it. During World War II, the German Shepherd gained a reputation across Europe, Japan, and the United States as a supreme military and police dog. The history of the breed, as Aaron Skabland details, was imbricated in imperial categories such as race, civilization, and loyalty, and hence intertwined with notions of blood, purity, and nation, largely through the pioneering work of Max von Stepanitz. Around the turn of the century, the breed was 
Germanized, that is, naturally endowed with the qualities of the nation, obedience, loyalty, courage, and discipline. To many allied nations, the Nazis' extensive use of this breed during World War II made the breed an icon of state terror, highlighting its unstable double image of obedient hero and vicious beast and this duality circumscribed the police use of this breed and in some ways still does today. The German Shepherd has a contradictory history in the United States. From the early 1900s to the early 1920s, the breed, became, the breed came to be popularly known as vicious and violent, similar to the more recent tribulations of the pit bull. Ironically, during this time, the shepherd dog, even when a pet or stray, was often referred to as a German police dog. But through popular depictions, such as the Rin Tin Tin series, the dog's violent image was rehabilitated as a courageous, heroic, obedient, and loyal companion breed. That is Tyler Wall's the very existence of civilization, the police dog, and racial terror. Uh, let's see. Do we have Silent Warrior? Are you with us with your question, sir? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Crystal clear. Thank you so much for being patient. Thank you for... Um, I, I, I was with you the first time, but somehow my device stopped working. Oh. Um, Mr. Perry, thank you very much for your work. Can you hear Thank me, you. sir? Yeah. Yes, yes, sorry. I, I, just, I just didn't know if there was a delay or not, so I wanted to let you finish. But thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, I thought that the work was very interesting. I'm from Jamaica, um, and I reflected on my father and some of the references that he's made about uh, people being treated better or worse than a dog. Uh, that's something that's said quite often in Jamaica. There's another saying that uh, dog eat your supper. And mm. so these are some of the remnants in Jamaica about how our, our relationship with dogs. People have dogs, but I've never really liked them. And I think mm -hmm. this is partly why some of the stories that you talk about here. You speak about um, how the dog the bloodhound was brought to jamaica to quell um some riots and i looked at the dates and they coincide with the second maroon war in jamaica mm -hmm. and um what's interesting um gus is that this and and you sir is that this second maroon war led to the deportation of the maroons 700 800 of them to canada Mm -hmm. so this is yes. this is after a hundred years of um um you know treaties being signed and so on and then finally after the second maroon war they were deported to canada um and then they eventually made it to west africa after a couple of years i thought it was a wilson moment when um you talked about the pit bull being intended to attack bulls actual bulls so um, we know from Dr. Wilson's work that the bull is a symbolic reference of black men from, um, that was developed mm -hmm. in yeah, Spain right. after their um, after the Moors. And um, 
Yeah. Uh, did you know, have during your reading, have you seen that the dogs have been used in Cameroon? Um, I actually have not um, seen anything in Cameroon, but I, I will admit that the section on colonial Africa is in development. So we have so far seen instances of this in Zaire, as mentioned, Zimbabwe, Namibia, and South Africa is the most prevalent example, but they were everywhere. And so I, I haven't actually heard of anything specifically in Cameroon, but would, would love to hear um, what you what insights you have. No, oh, I, I just asked my Cameroonian uh, roommate and he said no. Oh. Okay, so I'm sure I'm so sure there's far. something there. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do either or you or your colleague your colleague in this paper speak any other languages? Because I saw a lot of references to that were written in seem to be written in other languages than English. Right. Yeah. So I am I'm not fluent in any of the languages. I can research and read in Spanish and less so in French. I was trained in both during graduate school. But my co-author, who is a Latin Americanist, I think he can converse in four languages. And I think he taught himself a little bit of Italian because he did some research in the Vatican for this project, too. So he, he's trained much more adeptly and very quickly translating a number of the manuscripts that are written in non-English sources. So we, okay. we both travel to these areas, yeah. So he he was largely responsible for gathering the information in the archives in, in Haiti and throughout the Caribbean. Um, now, the, the circumstances we found is I, I went to Jamaica to do the research on the Jamaican section, and I spent time in the National Archives in Spanish Town and mm -hmm. um, the National Library in Kingston. So I've, I've gone to Jamaica think three times to gather information and then the rest of the records are in in Britain because of the colonial repositories wonderful I have a few more comments and then to end with some questions so one other comment I'd say is that um, I thought it was interesting how one group of white people oh uh, this is uh, we not do don't really do comments when we have our guests we just do questions if you want to share your comments okay. uh, later. Cool, cool. I'll questions. do that later sir thank you we need to save time okay so I'll go straight to my questions and it's about some of the terms that you use in the work um, I see you use the term black bodies and not black people and I'd like mm -hmm. um, I would like some some feedback on that why that choice um, I've seen this term black bodies elsewhere in um, recent literature, recent um, writings about race. So I'd like some comment about that. And then there's a question I, that kept popping up in my mind when I read your paper. Um, why is it that you say that, um, why is it that if the cruelty of the use of dogs needed to prove the evil of slavery to the abolitionist? Why is, it, you, why is that necessary? Who is the proof for? And wasn't the slavery of human beings enough? Good questions. Um, so regarding your first question, black bodies is a term that really entered the lexicon of many scholars, particularly in black studies. I think it probably became more popular five years ago. 
And I think it was in response to the recognition that white supremacy was a process of dehumanization and that chattel slavery was predicated upon seeing black people not as people but as bodies to be sold. So we use the term black bodies in this particular piece. I typically use the term black people in most of my publications, but to really assert the legacy of white supremacy and this violent form of anti-blackness, we wanted to use and showcase how the debasement of black people became so prevalent with the use of dogs that they would be seen simply as bodies to be bought, sold, or brutalized. And so it's to highlight this point that within this period, dehumanization was the ultimate goal, to not see them as people, but to see them simply as a body that could be manipulated um, for the structures of white supremacy. Um, when we talk about resistance, we use the term less, um, less often simply because we want to assert the personhood and the agency of the individuals that were involved in this process. But it was simply to highlight what was going on and to not, to not try to censor the brutality. And so we, we used the term um, that was being used by a number of scholars in black studies at that point to highlight the, the dehumanization of this particular process, which relates to, I think, your second question, in that the question of who was trying to be convinced of this was largely indifferent white Northerners. Um, and this is the classic story of most resistance movements, not just in the United States, but throughout the Americas as well, in that slavery in the U.S. took a unique form simply because as slavery was dying out in other areas, particularly in the British Empire in the, the 1830s, slavery was expanding in the United States while at the same time there was a construction of what were called free states where slavery was outlawed um, legally and gradually abolished in a similar way to, to the way it was done in other areas throughout the Atlantic. But there, as long as states' rights was recognized and that the states could assert themselves despite what the federal government desired to happen, you could have the formation of, of states that allowed slavery to perpetuate in the southern half of the United States. And this was the great fear and the contest that occurred over California, particularly by 1850. Was it going to be a free state or was it going to be a slave state? Now, for white northerners, particularly white people who lived outside of the south, the abolitionist movement had to convince individuals who had the voting power or who could lobby politicians or who could at least awaken public sentiment, they had to convince them that something was wrong, something was going on below the Mason-Dixon line, that even if you were not in favor of black people, you at the very least had to admit that the system of slavery as practiced in the 19th century was something that no one should have to experience. So the, 
the common story is that much of this is encapsulated by Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which becomes a bestseller, one of the most sold books, I think, in not just U.S. history, but world history. And that is what, you know, a white woman who's an abolitionist is what motivates other white people to finally wake up to this particular problem. But she is largely building off of the memoirs and the autobiographies published by people of African descent who had escaped slavery in the North and wrote down their experiences and published them for wide consumption. And the of these abolitionists, both black and white, determined that one of the ways that you could convince people that something, that what was going on was inherently wrong was the brutality of the bloodhounds. And really there were, there were probably three things that, that abolitionists really seemed to target. On the one hand, they would often talk about the injustice of withholding literacy from enslaved people, but particularly black people more broadly. And then they would talk about the lack of a legally recognized marriage, which allowed for the separation of, of parents from children, husbands from wives, and so on. And then the third was that the brutality as manifested by bloodhounds being trained to attack human beings. And so abolitionists were stressing enslaved people's humanity as they were trying to escape from the bloodhounds of the U.S. South. And they were saying, here we have human beings being debased below animals. So it's not even, once again, human-on-human -human violence. It is the fact that black people, as humans, are being targeted by a specific group of slave owners and debasing these individuals below dogs. And as I think I mentioned earlier in the podcast, there does seem to be something about the imagery of dogs attacking humans that awakens the sensibilities of people. And this is, you know, Americans are relatively familiar with this because some of the most famous images that will come out of the civil rights movement are of the German shepherds attacking peaceful protesters. And a number of people have argued that that, those, that set of images and that set of footage is what will propel the consciousness of white Americans to appeal for a change to the status quo. So yes, it should have been enough that people were being enslaved to awaken sensibilities at that time, but it, abolitionists were drawing upon the reality that people were horrified by the notion that dogs were intentionally attacking black people who were simply seeking freedom in the United States. Okay, I, f I have like 10 seconds for the last question. How does your thesis compete with explanations for the end of slavery that have less to do with white guilt and more to do with uh, economic competition? Uh, actually, hang on one second. Hang on one second, because we have a couple other folks who didn't get to get their question in at all. I want to make sure they get a few in as well, and then we'll see if we can squeeze that one in also. Uh, our uh, caller, Henry in Chicago. Henry in Chicago. Did you have a question for Dr. Harry? You should be with us, Henry in Chicago. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. 
All right. Uh, greetings, Gus, and greetings, Dr. Perry. Um, I joined the broadcast a little late, so if this has already been discussed, then my apologies. Uh, but one of the things that I found very intriguing when I learned about the Haitian Revolution was the use of man-eating dogs against the Haitians. Uh, one of the generals of the French army used to uh, use man-eating dogs against the Haitians uh, that he captured. So I was wondering, and you know, man-eating dogs imported from Cuba at that point. So I was wondering, in your studies, have you have you seen anything like that in regards to dogs basically eating flesh of of their victims? Thank you for that question. Um, the short answer is yes. Um, and this is a direct product of how the dogs were being intentionally trained to do this. Um, I think the general that you're referring to is Rochambeau. And yeah, he did procure those dogs from Cuba, as did the British colonials when they were engaging in the conflict with the Maroons. And then later, the, the American military would do the same thing against the Black Seminoles in the Florida Everglades. And so to kind of highlight this question within the, the broader scale of the transatlantic market, the Cuban bloodhound's reputation as a man-eater, but particularly one that is designed to attack black people most ferociously, acquires this reputation. And one thing that becomes very clear and apparent is that if you, the sources that are most useful for understanding the sheer brutality are those published by the formerly enslaved to make it very clear that these dogs showed no restraint in their brutality. And I, I remember reading, and this was perhaps an earlier source from Barbados in the earlier part of the colonization by the, the English at that point, there was a, a white abolitionist, he was a Quaker, uh, so um, a pacifist um, by, by training, he remembered visiting the island of Barbados and witnessing a large dog eating the body of a deceased enslaved man. And he doesn't say whether the dog killed the man or whether the man just perished and the dog ate the man, but he said that the image was so disturbing to him that he actually had to stop writing for a while because his hand kept shaking. And so from, from the earliest parts of colonization, you have these testimonials and narratives being released that talk about the literal eating of human flesh, but against subjugated people. So if you look at some drawings that have been found in Mexico during the period of, of colonization, Spanish colonization, you do find images that were, I think they were called a dogging, as translated into English, and it was this ritualized process of feeding people to the dogs. And so my co-author and I go into the, the Haitian Revolution to go a little bit deeper into this particular process and mentality that was used because the French army would lose that conflict. And the Haitian revolutionaries would, would prove victorious. But what Rochambeau seemed to be doing was kind of this last-ditch attempt to instill fear and terror within the rebelling population. And so the images that are released from the Haitian Revolution a few years later do show black people in cages about to be released to the dogs. 
And one thing my co-author found in his research was this attitude manifested by the French uh, colonizers to where it didn't seem like the brutality of the dog attacks bothered them all that much. What bothered them was that the dogs were too noisy, that they barked too loud, that they interrupted sleep at night. So it's really reflective of the brutality of colonization in that the tearing of flesh and the eating of people in both literal and symbolic terms was normalized in the 18th and early 19th centuries. And that that legacy will carry over into the post-emancipation period where dogs are still very much used to control and subjugate black people in the U.S. and, and beyond as well. Interesting. Thank you for your answer. Thank you. Great question. Let's see. Our caller, last four digits. Uh, last four digits, 3098. 3098. Did you have a question for Dr. Perry? Yes. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, callers. Good evening, Dr. Perry. Uh, I want to ask about your view on the difference between the book and the movie White Dog, and uh, why do you think that was um, was done? I'll meet my line. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, this is a great question. One one that might take a while, but I'll uh, be brief, because this is um, actually something I've been thinking about a lot lately due to the, my interest in writing a book about White Dog. Now, the, the brief answer is Romain Gary has, I guess for lack of a better you know, term, some interesting views on race and racism. And he seems to buy into the idea that black people can be racist and enacting power against white people. And I won't spoil the end of the book for <laughs> if, you're, if everyone's still reading it. But the, the, the basis is that his description of Keyes as a black Muslim and to some degree veers toward the idea of black nationalism is very much predicated upon these notions of, of white liberals like him. And remember, he's not an American, too. He's, he's a French consul. And, but he's using these figures to describe this idea of how race is conceptualized within the United States and also how racism is inculcated within people by using the, the symbol of the white dog as an expression of how human consciousness surrounding race and, and racial violence can be manipulated if trained over time. And so the, the, the places where the book and the movie are similar is asking this question as to the degree to which race and racism, or racism specifically, can be unlearned. And so Romain Gary is kind of this autobiographical work, more of an allegory to some degree of his life. He, he is curious as to whether or not Keyes can retrain the dog. And what he seems to assume about retraining or reprogramming the dog is can the dog stop attacking black people on impulse. Now, the movie 
as written and directed by Sam Fuller. And, you know, he has his own history. Him and Gary were friends, which is why he was eventually commissioned to, to direct the film. He adjusted a lot of the assumptions about, you know, social context within the 1960s because the movie wasn't made or really finished until the early 1980s. Now, it had gone through a number of reiterations um, throughout that decade period when the novel was released, I think, in 1970, all the way up to 1981, when I think the final manuscript for the movie was completed. So Fuller was detaching it from that period of black power, and particularly the prevalence of Black Panthers within California at that time. And so he restructured it to be much more of a narrative about eliminating racism from one's conscious and the degree to which that was possible. Gary seems to believe that racism can be transferred from one of white supremacy to one of black supremacy. Fuller will kind of reject that and simply say, for him, the better story and perhaps more marketable story for Hollywood was the possibility under which Keyes can be a more sympathetic character within the film, a person who has, I guess, um, what you might call virtuous motivations to deprogramming the dog. It's his mission to find a way to eliminate racism because if you can do it to a dog, you can do it to a person. And so he tries to construct Keyes as a more sympathetic figure, if not the main hero of the particular film, but he still comes to this conclusion that's somewhat similar to what Gary was exploring in that it's not entirely clear if a thing that has been taught so much hate throughout its entire life can ever be completely deconditioned. Um, because one, one theory I've found in explaining the ending of White Dog is that instead of becoming non-racist or anti-racist, the dog seems to just suffer a nervous breakdown. And so there's, there's a variety of differences between the two. Some of it is simply what Hollywood traditionally does in clipping a lot of parts for time and content. But the, the main departure is the figure of Keyes and how he is represented in the film versus the book. Gary makes Keyes a very unsympathetic character by the end of it, at least, you know, according to perhaps white readers. But um, within the film, Fuller seemed to want keys to be a figure that had more virtuous motivations. Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, before we nab uh, Miss C and non-Clemson grad, uh, Nancy, they have questions. Oh, South Carolina got mentioned. <laughs> we are uh, overflowing with uh, coincidence today, but South Carolina calls will be next up. Uh, no. But wanted to make sure I get okay. Can I be here? Oh, right. just give me one second, non-Clemson grad. Yes, sir. Crystal clear. Just with White Dog, really quick. I think. There's a, sub a substantial change with Key's character mm -hmm. in terms of what Fuller presents and his 
body of film work touches a lot on racism, like Shock Corridor. He has a whole yes. homage to Dixie, like very interesting body of work for Sam Fuller. But um, there are substantial changes with regards to Key's character. Absolutely, he's not a black Muslim, and his reasons for working with the dog and all that, super different. But I think in terms of the biggest change, because I just we just started reading the book. We're only about halfway through. Yeah. This is not a police dog. In right. the book, this yeah. is a police dog with, I mean, I said, wow, that is staggering. We're reading it at this time. It's not a police dog in the movie. I think that is, I would put that on par with Keys. Key, I mean, even before you get to the end and what he does to the dog and all that, the way that he describes Keys, like having all these teeth, he says he has an unnatural number of teeth in his mouth. It's like, what, is he talking about the dog or is he talking about Keys here? Yeah. But, uh, I also think with Key, it depends with Keys in terms of how sympathetic you think his character is in the movie. The dog kills black people in the movie. That's another major change. The dog, at least at the point we're at, has not killed anybody. Uh, he just right. gets upset at black people. He doesn't actually kill them. In the movie, he kills multiple black people, all black males. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Keys allows this dog to kill a black male in a church and doesn't Tell him or what happened. They don't even, you don't see the police, the ambulance yeah. come. You can cue Pulp Fiction, the best line we talked about, no one who will be missed. These black males aren't identified. You don't see the paramedics come. There's no non-one, like, missing person, nothing. It just goes on, da, 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 da. hope he doesn't chop on another black person, no, another black male. Uh, and the scene in the church, the religion of white supremacy uh, killed in a church as though white Jesus is looking on as the dog has mauled this black male uh, in a church. I don't know if that scene pops up in the, in the uh, book later, but just I guess if we could get a quick thought before we get non-Clemson grad's question, this is not a police dog in the film. I think that is an enormous change and the scene where the black male is mauled in a church under white Jesus. Yeah, just really quickly, um, I won't take up too much time, but what, what you have mentioned is, an incredibly important point because what what people you know what they find is within the film the dog is just from a trailer park with a trained by a racist and that and that moment is really brief when uh, the protagonist I forget her name in, in the film but she has a confrontation with the original owner but it's it's far less intense than what kind of Gary talks about in that this this training regimen that, that takes place within, you know, the, and I think that they say the dog is a descendant of the Alabama police dog. Like there's this right. kind of connection, like literal connection, very visceral connection between that moment during the civil rights protests and what Gary was um, exploring within that, that dog. And, and what I will say is from my recollections of the book and, and from my readings of the archival transcripts, so the non-published stuff where Fuller is exchanging his ideas with people within the studio, I think they almost took the church part out of the final cut, but I think Fuller was very insistent that it be kept in. He, he wanted that particular scene because he thought it was the, one of the most powerful expressions of the dehumanization of, of anti-black racism. So it's, it's interesting that you honed in on that piece because that was, for at least from my recollection of reading the, the transcripts, one of the scenes that they were they were discussing as to whether or not it was it was too much to, to put into the film, but Fuller Fuller believed that it needed to be there. It's one of the most powerful scenes in the film. The religion 
of white, white Jesus literally is looking down as this black male is killed with the German shepherd's blood is flowing out, flowing out of his throat. And then keys, he doesn't even kill the dog then. Then the dog is saved and we're still going to rehab it. They even have a little white woman is saying, it. This, oh, yeah, you got to kill the dog. This is ridiculous. Got to kill the dog. And keys, no, 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 no. No, no, no. We got to keep trying. We got to keep trying. We got to save the dog. What happened to the black guy? What's his name even? Does he have a name? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, South Carolina, uh, non-Clemson grad, did you have a question, sir? Uh, yes, I have two questions. The first was um, one of the lines that was in the published paper that was initially talked about. I will start with that. Um, on page 11, you say the canine corpse of the late 1950s and early 1960s was but a novel weapon manifesting this historical logic as the police dog runs on the scene as white uh, uh, petrified classes and their local representatives claim that the militant black organizing and population unabsorbed by the capital commodity production, primarily black surplus, were threatened to devour the social order itself. Can you elaborate on this matter? And also, can you go into the definition of what would be considered primarily black surplus and then the second question I have is about the idea of, uh, you know, I think you referred to the, um, the initial training of, of German shepherds, in particular, at least in this paper, as, uh, as Nazi dogs. You know, at least, uh, you know, at least in American history, the South is considered to be, you know, at least after the Civil War, the part of, you know, the aggressors and the ones who lost the war. And, of course, the Nazis are considered to be the people that lost the war. But here we are in the modern era where we still have the remnants of the Nazis and the dogs that they trained and the fact that the South, is, even though they lost, are primarily the people who write the history for this country when you think of you know, the women of the Confederates. Can you elaborate on those two things, please? Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for that question. Um, if I'm clear, was the, the article you're referencing the one that I wrote or was that from Tyler Wall? Because I think that sounded like the, way um, the, one, um, the one call uh, for the very existence of citizens, the police dog, and racial terror. Yeah, that, that, one I, that one I didn't write, but I love the article, so I'll, I'll maybe explain maybe the broader context of your question. So one thing to understand is that the legacies of the German Shepherd as the police dog, particularly the police dog that manifests anti-black violence, sanctioned by the police state, is that if you look at even some of the modern training techniques, there was an article that came out, gosh, it must have been about two weeks, maybe three weeks ago, that wrote about how German Shepherd police dogs still respond to German commands. So the language which they are trained under is one as in the inheritance of the Nazi regime, I mean, the language that would have been used to um, sick them on a Jewish, in the, in the concentration camps. And if you look at even some of the training camps that sell these dogs, the German Shepherd dogs, they actually have similar names to some of the Nazi outposts that were used. So the legacy of the German Shepherd as visualized by Hitler as a manifestation of Aryan nationhood or as a symbol of Aryan nationhood is still very much embedded and was embedded in the 1950s and 60s in particular um, within the legacy of, of the Nazi regime. I'm sorry, did, did I hear a question? 
Um, oh. I'm not sure if you caught the hello. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm not sure if you caught the entirety of the question. Um, so I think you answered part of the second question with the idea that you know the Nazis were the ones that lost the war, just like the um, the Confederates were the ones that lost the Civil War as well too. Yeah, we still have a situation where the Nazis, at least some of the stuff that they practiced have now lived on into the modern age, like, for example, you know, um, you know, German Shepherds as Nazi dogs. And, of course, we have the South where, you know, you know, maybe the South lost the war, but, you know, for example, they get to write the history from the war. Uh, and, and, of course, the first question was an elaboration on what is meant by the phrase primarily black surplus. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd have to uh, kind of return to Tyler Wall's essay on that to see the fuller context. Cause I know you had quoted it, but I'd have to have it in front of me to really maybe peel back what, what he's trying to say. But it might be better to contact him about that. Okay. Because he's, he's invested in a specific moment, as far as from what I remember about his article, within the 1950s and the 60s and the acquisition of dogs and the predations of the police department against black Americans at that point. So, I mean, what I assume he means by that, just based upon uh, the quick statement, is this idea that the police state is predicated, its growth is predicated upon ensuring that black people are subjugated and brutalized as an excuse to continuously incarcerate people and essentially this circular motion of continuous subjugation perpetuated by both humans and dogs working in tandem together under the sanction of the or, or under the permission of the states but um i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to speak for him on that on that regard okay that's fine um, I can definitely go ahead and at least try to contact the, um, the co-author as well, too. And then with the second question, um, I think you were still trying to get out of it. We're going to make it, make it a little bit more clear um, about, you know, Nazis lost, the Confederate lost, but it also goes back to what um, Gus said earlier in the broadcast about the idea of white being ignorant. Um, does that make sense? So, for example, yeah. you know, and not these laws, but, you know, the remnants of what they do is, you know, still with us all the way into the modern age. The Confederate laws of what they've done is still with the modern age. And yet people like to feign this ignorance that, uh, well, these white people like to feign this ignorance that they don't know what people are talking about when, you know, certain races that's come out. So, for example, I live in a black neighborhood, and then, you know, white people move into the neighborhood, you know, all of a sudden everyone has dogs. And, you know, they like to pretend, like, you know, they don't understand the ramifications of having a dog and how intimidating a dog can be in the presence of a black person. That's what I mean by like that that um those connections that, you know, Nazi um, you know, Nazis trading dogs, Confederates play ignorant, white people play ignorant, and that global connection between all these things. Yeah, no, I mean you've you've asked a great question and, and made a great point in that I'll try to be kind of brief um, for the sake of time, but what you are getting at here is this reality that a number of scholars have proposed this idea that the South lost the physical war, but they won the eventual conflict because, you know, there were 
there was an initiative to reintegrate the South into the United States. Um, reconstruction failed because the, the federal government uh, essentially subjugated themselves to white Southern interests, so the reestablishment of white supremacy under the Jim Crow system was incepted by at least the 1880s uh, following the Civil War. And what that essentially means is that the South would not only be able to write its own history, or, or white Southerners would not be able to write their own history, but have a disproportionate influence upon the national narratives of how slavery is remembered and commemorated within the United States. So Confederate soldiers who were traitors to their government were now declared heroes, and the buildings and structures, as you mentioned, commissioned by the United Daughters of the Confederacy throughout the early 20th century would serve as symbols of not just white supremacy, but an erasure of the brutality of, of Southern slavery. And once again, it goes back to this idea of things being deliberate. So if you read the journals or the publications of particularly white Southern women after the Civil War, you will find a very benign discussion about slavery. They admitted that slavery occurred. They weren't trying to cover that up. What they were trying to do was garner sympathy for the white people who owned slaves by promoting this idea that would become encapsulated by Gone with the Wind and Margaret Mitchell's novel, and, and then, of course, Birth of a Nation as this idea that white people were, or white men specifically, were reclaiming the land from the threat of black men. They were essentially claiming that white and black Southerners loved one another and that enslaved people fondly reminisced upon their, their masters who subjugated them. And so for white people who were not Southern reading this literature, you know, Gone with the Wind would be one of the best sellers um, throughout the 20th century. And so you have white people consuming the literature of the romanticized South the Moonlight and Magnolia's narrative, which would downplay the actual violence that occurred. And so follow this trajectory to where pro-slavery textbooks start to be sent all throughout the K through 12 school system at this point, up until about the 1950s when other historians started challenging the narrative. But professional historians, white academics, would promote this idea of the plantation as a school which black people learned, you know, Western education and encouraged their eventual citizenship in the U.S. nation state. So there was a deliberate cover-up of the brutality and an erasure of black voices within the entire narrative. Because, once again, the U.S. actually has a very, very large collection, when compared to other countries, of autobiographies written or at least produced by and about formerly enslaved people, who made it very clear what happened under the system. But those were ignored by professional white academics for a number of generations until they were challenged by an era of scholars who came up during the civil rights movement and wanted to write more about resistance. So they, I guess you could say, rediscovered the narratives of formerly enslaved people that provided a very different understanding and narrative of US slavery. But despite that effort, what we do see up until very recently 
was people essentially bought into this idea of the romanticized South. All of the monuments that were put up during the Jim Crow period essentially stayed for many generations, even if there was a rising disavowal of slavery in the history of the United States. There was an era that's typically deemed the era of colorblindness, where you have efforts by peoples, usually, usually liberals, by saying race doesn't matter, just take people for who they are and ignore a person's background, see them as a human rather than as a, a person who has a specific race. And as well-intentioned as that might sound, it allowed white people who were part of the privileged group to ignore systemic functions of racism that continued to be perpetuated against black Americans, particularly throughout the mid-1980s and throughout the 1990s. Now, I was born in 1984 as a product of kind of the, the era of colorblindness. But if you look at some of the, the sources, there's a new book out. Um, I forget the title of it, but it was published by the University of North Carolina Press that talks about how Hollywood was complicit in instituting this era of colorblindness. And this was something constructed by the Reagan administration so that people would essentially ignore race, which then means they will ignore racism or they will view racism as an anomaly within a multicultural society. And I think um, to one of the early, earlier callers, the, the person from Canada, they had kind of mentioned this idea as to how this operates in other countries that are predominantly white is that you express forms of multiculturalism and you celebrate the diversity of your nation while simultaneously marginalized groups are continuing to be beaten down by the system. It continues to happen, but it's much easier to ignore if you're simply promoting it or promoting your society as one that doesn't see race or doesn't judge a person by their, by their racialized status and you judge them by kind of this colorblind idea of being human. But what we've seen is a, a challenge to this narrative recently to where people have seen that the colorblind narrative has done more damage because black men have still been disproportionately incarcerated, the police state has grown, and police brutality continues to be instituted, and <clears throat> disproportionate rates of poverty by race. So I don't know if that answers your entire question, but I guess it gets into this broader narrative of how there was a deliberate reinterpretation of slavery written by the slave owners and their descendants. And then after that generation, there is an idea of colorblindness that starts to impact young people who, particularly if they are white, can pretend not to see race, as, which then leads them to ignore actual functions of systemic racism. I wanted to get our last caller in, uh, Thomas in New York. Did you have a question for Dr. Perry, Thomas in New York? Good evening, Dr. Perry. Um, is your first name Tyler? Yeah, Tyler, yes. Oh, man, the popular first name. Um, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I was trying to get a, a glimpse of you, and every time I put your name in, I kept getting Tyler Perry. I'm like, oh. Um, my question is, um, do you yeah. think um, do you think that um, oh, Tyler Perry has some um, pretty nice um, black German shepherds, by the way. Um, 
Do you think the author of Omain Gary was a racist? Yeah, I mean, when you read that particular novel, you've asked a good question that I, I think is, is worth unpacking because I've actually thought about that. I think he is the standard kind of white liberal who does manifest forms of white liberal racism. And throughout his novel, the way he talks about black people, I would deem racist. Um, now, whether that is something he inherited from his background in France, or if it was a manifestation of his assumptions about black people as he was living in the United States. There's not a huge amount of information on his biography, unfortunately, as far as I know. I mean, there might be some stuff in France that I haven't seen, but he, he does speak about black people in a racist way. And, you know, once again, without giving away the end of the book, I think the way the novel ends does manifest racism on his part. Um, I, I think, and I think this is one thing that Sam Fuller tried to reject. He thought, you know, Gary was being too extreme in his ultimate judgment about racism and the abilities of, of black people to be anti-white and racist. So it's not something that I've, I've written about, and you're the first person that's asked me that, but it's something I've thought about. And, and my judgment is that he would be declared a racist by, by people who, who read that book. Okay. Um, earlier in the show, uh, Gus said that you look somewhat racially ambiguous. I mean, you said you were a white man. Um, mm -hmm. have, you had a, have you ever heard had a white person make a mistake and um, think that you were a black person before? Well, if if it has happened, they haven't told me yet. I, I mean, I I can't think. I'm sure I have, but I, I can't think of any instance of that happening at this particular moment. Have you or ever had, had a black? Have you ever had a black person mistake you for a black person before? Yes. Yeah, that that has happened before. Uh, what yeah. about black women? Um, I think so. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, is if if people thought that and then they find out I'm white, they sometimes don't tell me. So I, I, it it doesn't always reveal itself very clearly. Um, but I haven't. I've had maybe three or four long discussions with people that I'd known about my identity because I think they, they initially thought I was at least partially black, but then they found out I was white. And a lot of times it just comes up in conversation. Um, sometimes a friend of mine or my wife will mention that I'm, I'm white and the person will be surprised and sometimes will admit that they thought I was, I was black. But it's, um, I think it's is awkward your wife white? for a lot of people. Is your wife, is your wife a white woman? She is not. Oh, is she black? No, uh, she is. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Yes, she is. She's black. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you ever had a black person um, mistake you? Or have you ever had a black person accuse you of being a racist? No, I haven't. I actually haven't. 
Sorry. That's my last question. Thank you, Gus. Right on. Missed my cowbell. Working hard today, having computer problems. Uh, our guest, Dr. Tyler D. Perry, uh, thank you for being so generous with your time. Before we let you go, enjoy the rest of your evening. I'm still on my game. I got my question. Got it together that we're talking to a white person. So the non-white author, his sentence is, white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism, but rarely are they pained enough. So I ask our white guests, to say, just based on your research, the white people that you've been around and such, do you think a substantial number of white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism, nigger dogs and all the rest of it? Do you think white people, a substantial number of them, are regularly, sincerely, greatly pained about racism? Okay, so this is, this is actually a pretty complex question. So I will say that in my experience associating with a lot of white people and with what I do for a living and the stories that I uncover and then what I tell people is that from what they tell me, these are anecdotes I'm working with, is that they are shocked at how violent anti-blackness has been. And I think this is a problem with the educational system in that the vast, vast, vast majority of white Americans know slavery happened. Um, they know it was wrong. And I think they're troubled by it, but they're not troubled enough by it. And I think it's because the curriculum does not highlight enough these aspects of research that I'm trying to uncover along with many of my colleagues within African-American history and, and the Atlantic world. And so I would say that white people who uncover these narratives, who don't study this for a living or who otherwise just go about their lives indifferently, because that's a, a form of privilege um, allotted to white people, when they do come across these, they, they are shocked. And I think they, they are genuinely troubled by it. But does that equate to action? I think often it doesn't. And I think this is proven by the historical process in that you have systems of oppression that have lasted for multiple generations on American soil amidst a white majority who does nothing up until a particular moment. And this is the, the abolitionist movement. This is the civil rights movement. Um, every form of black resistance against the system has essentially tried to awaken in different white people or white people who aren't paying attention. So white people are troubled by these narratives of anti-black racism, but they're not troubled enough. Um, but you know, things, things can change in certain instances, the historical process. Um, the, the hope is that we might be seeing one now with the toppling of monuments, but it has to lead to some form of legislative and systemic change. Um, and so hopefully the momentum can be kept um, within this particular moment we're living in. Hmm. All right, I am so glad I was able to go back and find that sentence because we've asked a lot of our guests on the program uh, who classifies white, you've asked them that question. And uh, we've actually had a, a substantial number of white people who have admitted, no, that's not true. Most white people, they do not care. They are not pained sincerely or no. 
uh, about racism, not at all. We wouldn't still have this problem. But we have had also a lot of white people who have given a response that is similar to what you just shared, and we even heard that other P word, privilege, which we had not heard during the entire broadcast. As soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, that sounds what I often hear white people, uh, and white people that I would say are not serious about ending the system of racism, white supremacy, when the word privilege pops up. <laughs> Man, we got nigger dogs. That is not privilege. That is power and terrorism. Uh, I am super excited about the uh, books. It would be plural now, the entire analysis, slavery, all the way through the canine units urinating uh, at the Michael Brown Jr. Memorial in Ferguson. Uh, mm-hmm. That's one project. And then the white dog analysis. Man, I'm, I'm excited. Hopefully we'll be around to uh, see both of them published. Uh, and to check them out, we'll have finished, presumably, White Dog by then. So we'll be, wow, ready and, and super excited. You'll have an audience at the ready. What's the, the article that just talked about the German Shepherd police dogs? They still respond to German commands. Uh, can you point us in? Oh, yeah, let me see if I can find it. I, I, I don't have it up right now. Or Let me see, police dogs, German commands. Yeah, I, I saw it a few weeks ago, and I was talking to somebody about it. If it takes you a while to locate, you could drop me an email because I would definitely yeah. love to check that out, and I'm sure some of our listeners would as well. So if it's something that will take you a little while, then you can just drop an email later, and we'll thank you and yeah. pass it along. Yeah, I'll do that. And I know somebody, a journalist, who's writing a broader article about police dogs. So as soon as I hear that comes out, I'll, I'll send that to you as well. Mm. Yeah. Love it, love it, love it. Uh, our guest for the evening from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I've been to their uh, library system. Uh, Dr. Tyler D. Perry, uh, we talked about slave hounds and abolition in the Americas and white dog and a few other things. Uh, It has been grand, super enjoyed the article, lots of great information. Hope listeners will check it out. And we will be looking forward, uh, in fact, looking forward to copies of the books when they uh, are published, like, yes, copy the Gusty Renegade review and let's get ready to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. You'll, 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 be, you'll be on the top of my list. I appreciate the opportunity, for sure. Thank you so much for being generous with your time, sir. We will uh, look forward to talking and reading more from you in the future. Take excellent care and uh, stay safe in Nevada. All right. You too. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Context of white supremacy. Wowee. Wowee. White dog, all of this came from white dog. I had never heard of uh, Dr. Perry and his work, which is phenomenal. Folks, it's free. You should get it. Slave Hounds and Abolition in the Americas. Download it. Check it out. The other article that I referenced is not written uh, by Tyler Perry, but it's still very good. Uh, You should get that one as well. That is, listen to this title, For the Very Existence of Civilization, The Police Dog and Racial Terror. That one is by Tyler Wall. Isn't that crazy? That's the same. Anyway, that one is Tyler Wall. Equally good, but different author. You should maybe see if we should talk to him too, right? It's interesting, right? Right? We should talk to Tyler Wall. Anywho, uh, so White Dog is Thursday. We will continue. Fast, I told people, threatening my top ten, that would be another key component. If it's a book that's in the top ten, it should produce other constructive books, right? Like Medical Apartheid has a spectacular reference section with all kinds of other great books to check out. Same thing with a lot of the other books that I talk about all the time. Uh, in my, the Warmth of Other Suns, lots of great references. 
Dr. Welsing, the ISIS papers, lots of other good books get referenced there. So it's not just you read one good book, you get to read a lot of good books. That is the case here. White dog, bang. And just to continue finding other ones, maybe Dr. Perry will get those books published in. All the, read White Dog, encourage folks, read White Dog, and then you can watch it. You should read the book first because the book is just exponentially more informative and better than the movie. You can watch the book and then watch the movie and do a study session around it. Uh, I'll get to the listeners, but I guess people should take a look at Dr. Perry because this is a rare error. I make lots of errors, but I generally don't make this error where I see someone and think that this person is non-white they're actually a white person. I normally do the other way around, where I will see someone and think that, oh, this is a white person, and no, it is actually a non-white person. Like, I generally will do that type of thing. Like, I'll see somebody like, uh, let's just say Blake Griffin. I don't know. Take, uh, let's take Blake Griffin just for sake of things. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, maybe he could be classed with other white. And no, obviously not. I, wouldn't, I never thought Blake Griffin was white. I'm just trying to think of somebody like that. But that's generally the type of error that I make, those type of false positives. It's not too often where I see someone and think, oh, yeah, I think this is a non-white person, and because eh, that's, like, really dangerous. Like, I try not to make that one. Like, whew, if, I, if we're going to make an error with racial classifications, it should be on the, whew, I thought this was a white person and was trying to be safe, and it turns out this is a victim. Not the other way around. Like, when I mean, I made a spectacular whoops. Like, this is a white person married to a black person. Like, whoa, cowbell. <laughs> like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's why you've got to ask. You've got to ask. I saw one photograph. I didn't see video. I saw photos. You could see some photos, and it could be lighting. It could be they had a tan. He's out in Nevada, so he could have been outside a lot of times. It could be a lot of things. It could be bad photography. <laughs> like, you saw it in bad lighting yourself, anything. Uh, but ask. That's why I get that question at the beginning of the program. Are we talking to a white person? Are we talking to a non-white person? Like, let's not get an hour down the road and, oh, wait a minute, I thought this was black brother Tyler Perry, and this is suspected race soldier cow. Like, whoa, whoa. Uh, so if we have folks who've actually seen an image of Dr. Perry, did anybody else? Because uh, I, I really didn't have to ask that because he said people have made that error. Thomas in New York asked too. I did as well. He said other people have seen him and been confused about his racial classification, so it's not just me. But any other people, did you look at his image and, you know, just any thoughts? Was anybody else confused? Did you see his picture and just, man, that Gus is retarded. This is a white fella. I don't know what he was looking at. <laughs> Racist suspect, Gus is retarded. I was also did confused. Silent Warrior, let's go one at a time. Silent Warrior. I was also confused, and that was my number one question. I think it did an excellent job. I was not the only one. Okay, I heard somebody else. Uh, yeah, that was me, and um, I was definitely looking at a couple pictures, and um, I would have maybe thought Hispanic. Well, they can see they can. That's not a racial class because <laughs> they got Hispanic, oh, white, Hispanic. Can I be heard? <laughs> Wait a minute, we non Clemson grad didn't even give us a, a logical answer. <laughs> like, wait a minute, like let's uh so Hi, that's guys. just confusion. Wait wait a minute, I heard you uh be in Toronto. Non Clemson so we got Hispanic, but see that's not even a classification because they got Hispanic white non white. So confused or we just leave it at Hispanic? 
Um, well, no, you're absolutely right. Um, Hispanic is not a racial classification, but at least at the very least to me, he gives, I mean, with the picture that I see on Google right now, that's the feel that I am getting. But uh, my wife says white person. But there is one picture um, in particular right now I'm looking at, and where um, there's maybe this is a better picture where he clearly looks to me that he is a white person. I could definitely maybe post that picture on um, on uh, Facebook or something like that. But this person definitely looks white in this particular picture. But of all the pictures that I see right now, it is the only picture that I can find where he clearly looks like a white person. All the other ones, it's like. Eh. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that was nine Clemson grad. He said Hispanic. And then uh, we heard Miss C's background. <laughs> she said white person. I will say the same thing. I saw some different photographs. I think the first few photographs, I said, oh, okay, black brother, Dr. Perry, cool. Get my brother. And I saw a few other pictures, and I saw him. I was like, wait a minute. Is that blue eyes? I'm like, whoa, whoa. Is this a white? Let me make sure. I <laughs> ask at the beginning, like, Whoa, and I looked at a few photographs, and I, I started, I said, okay, this is a non-white person, and then I saw the blue eye picture, and I said, whoa, maybe this is a white person. And then I looked at a few others. I didn't even have a vote at that point. I was like, we just have to see what he says at the beginning of the program and try our best to adjust as we, you know, make it through. Be in Toronto. I got, we'll get all the other folks, too. Be in Toronto. Hi. Thank you, Gus. Um, I was looking at several images of uh, Dr. Perry. Um, Initially, my impression would have been that he was non-white, um, despite the color of his eyes, because I've, I've seen um, many non-white individuals um, uh, with different colored uh, eyes, uh, green, blue, uh, hazel, gray. Um, but then uh, I've also seen... Um, those who identify themselves as Middle Eastern, um, like from Afghanistan, from um, Iraq, uh, Iran, Assyria, Syria, and and others, um, although their uh, the pigment on their skin may look um, slightly darker, um, they would still classify themselves as white on the census. Um, so that was the other possibility that was brought to mind. It would be interesting to find out more about his family background. Um, but yes, yeah, so initially I didn't think that he was white. I initially thought he was non-white. Um, but great call on you know confirming um, you know the the type of individual um, what they designate themselves as. Thank you. Self-defense, really, uh, be in Toronto. Did we have uh, was somebody else? I don't know if that was Thomas in New York. Was somebody else? Yeah, there? sir. Good evening, Gus. Um, yeah, I had pulled up the pictures. got about five or six of them. And I said, this guy looks, I would think that he was um, a light-skinned black person. Um, and um, I scrolled down. I went and showed my wife, like, what do you think this guy is? Said, oh, he's black. I said, oh, okay. That's why I asked, so, you know, how do black women treat you? Uh, you know, that was, I didn't know he had a black wife. But, because, um, <laughs> hey, a light-skinned brother, you know, I mean, especially, you know, pass for white. But I, in my opinion, you know, I thought Samoan, um, like from the, 
the Pacific Islands. He has that rock, kind of, even though rock has a black father, you know, but he kind of has that look to him. Um, I, I assume that white people would question his race uh, quite often. And um, he said they don't. So I, I, I think there might be a little deception there because I just can't see this guy just joining the frat, you know, and no one say, yo, you know, you know, hey, let's, let's see a picture of your parents, you know what I'm saying, or anything. And I'll mute my line. Thank you. I would think the same thing. If the German shepherd comes around, I would not feel comfortable standing next to you. Like, nah. <laughs> I don't know. Isn't that fascinating? Like, my, There was a lot of things fascinating about this one. Like, wow, we could have talked for about five hours. Uh, I'm sure listeners had more questions than all. I know I had. I could have just talked. We didn't even talk about white dog that much. Like, I could have talked about white dog. For, man, how did we stumble into black Miss Andrew again? Like, that came up in White Dog where he said they trained that dog to attack just black males. And I said, man, this does not seem like that saying the black man and talking about everybody. This seems like just black males, people with a penis. And then to have that come up again, the dogs are trying. I don't even think that, or at least in my little peanut Negro mind, that shouldn't even be possible. How does the dog know the difference between a female and a male? Much less, you then got to pick out even more like, oh, that's a nigra male, nigra female. Let that one slide. That's transgender. Let that one slide. I think that might be President Obama. We'll drool on him and think of I mean, what? They have trained the dog to pick out black males specifically? I don't want to ever hear the concept black male privilege again, unless you can point me out where they got, you know, chink dogs or Jew dogs or something else. Unless you can show me that, I don't ever, ever, ever want to hear anybody say black male privilege. Like they said they trained the dog to attack the genitals. Like, any other comments folks want to make sure that they share? Thomas in New York. Um, Yeah, I think um, dogs tend to have a scent, and they can smell a woman's scent. They can smell a male's. They always go, like, right between your legs for the smell. I don't know. Um, But... I don't know. They, they treat women different. Um, I haven't had a dog in quite some time. I didn't put two and two together until this interview because I never thought of it like as a historical thing. I'm just looking at it like we're reading the book, White Dog. But there's a long history of um, these white people, uh, and depending on where you put yourself or your lineage in the 1500s, I say attacking us, with dogs, they would even put make armor for the dogs. Um, look up the conquistador dogs and um, the Spanish war dogs. I mean, they went to war with tribes using dogs. They one dog killed thirty people in one day. Like, and it, it's it's um, man, I think this was in Puerto Rico. It's a lot of history on this. Um, the old the well, I ain't gonna start going through all these conquistador names, but um, it, it's. Man, these people have been using, these were mostly corsos. So if you go throughout, like, you got down in Argentina, they got the Dorgo Argentina, which is the Dorgo Argentina is uh, one of the corso breeds that they brought over to conquer the people there. They have a Brazilian corso. It, it goes through all, um, these are big, massive dogs. And um, even in South Africa with the Borbles, um, which, they train to kill black people, the Catholics there. I mean, 
you know, uh, in fact, there's a story that Elon Musk's father, you know, how he was uh, um, training those baubles to kill the black people because he wasn't always home. Uh, but these were these are huge, though, way bigger than a German Shepherd. Um, probably not as smart, but way bigger, it's stronger, like a big pit bull. Um, but yeah, it's, they even got them in the Canary Islands, like the the Corsairs. All over, everywhere they go, they bring these big dogs to protect them against the, the savages. Um, but they specifically came here to all all of South America, the Caribbean, Central America, Florida, um, Texas. With these corsos, they would build them um, these um, like night, you know, like the you know the knights with the sword type thing. They would build those armors for the dogs, specifically for each dog. And um, these dogs were treated like champions. Like they got streets and stuff named after them in Spain and in um, Portugal. I mean, I want to thank you. Romulus and Remus, we did start with that at the beginning of the program. There are these uh, reports that we've been talking about. They are extensively, extensively footnoted with white people's use of dogs in combat, battle, principally maintenance of white supremacy, racism all over the world. He said that was one of the key points in his report, uh, all over the world, well documented. Uh, other folks have any comments they need to make sure they get in? Can I speak? Can I heard both of you. Uh, right on. Silent Warrior, it's, let's see, you can get my timestamp in. Four, it's about to be 4.45 a.m. Norway time. Silent Warrior. Thank you very much. Um, I thought it was a great uh, show today. Thank you very much for getting in. I thought uh, there was lots of great references in the book, but I have to say that the questions at the end were really good. Um, black people think he's black. White people never think he's black. Wife is a black woman, and no black person has accused him of being a racist. He's on Facebook, and I've seen some of the face profile pictures on Facebook look completely different from the one that he has professionally on the website. So the one on the website that we've been looking at, he does look like my next-door neighbor in Jamaica. It, and it's just confusing. But the ones on Facebook, he kind of does kind of look like a frat boy. So that's interesting. So the, um, the question I wanted to ask him, Gus, was how does his thesis compete with explanations for the end of slavery that have less to do with, this is a bad term, white guilt? But and more to do with economics, economic competition between groups of white people, um, or the cost of slave rebellions. And since he also mentioned civil rights and I mean the use of dogs during the civil rights struggle, I would have also asked him how you know if he because I could see him going from there, even using this kind of thesis, I can see him going from there to talk about the use of dogs and how people, because that's a common theme, isn't it, that people saw dogs being used on black people and then they felt bad. But uh, we've also seen people like Gerald Horn talk about that um, the granting of civil rights might have something to do with international, that U.S. has international concerns about how communism is spreading around the world and communism in, you know, communist connections with African uh, black resistance in America. So I thought, I mean, he makes, he he has a very well-documented paper, but his thesis, I can see how dogs are used to establish 
um, white supremacy. But I don't see how um, the abolitionists were using that, that, you know, that the abolitionists complaining about them and pointing to them is what led to the downfall of slavery. I'm not getting that. I'm not buying that. And I think it's um, unfortunate that he doesn't include or refer people to the other explanations that have um, the end of slavery having to do with economic concerns or why people wanted to refine racism further. Um, I, my, I had a little outlier question up because he talks about interspeciesism. And, um, you know, canine sounds like the name of a cyborg. And I, I just had a thought today as I was reading this paper, like this, this thing makes me think of transhumanism and about how people say that AI will be the future um, tool that's used by white supremacy to augment their practice of racism. And that's it for me. Great show. Lots of reading material. Thank you. Reading is more important than watching television. Uh, Henry in Chicago, thank you, thank you for your patience, sir. Uh, yeah, you know, my apologies for being late on the show, uh, and also, too, I wasn't doing my homework, so I didn't read the article, nor did I uh, see his picture. But when I got into, when I called into the show, I had assumed, you know, because of his voice that, he was a non-white black male <laughs> because he sounds similar to another professor that I that I know. And, yeah, I was assuming that we were listening to a non-white black male until uh, Thomas, you know, pointed it out. And when I looked online, you know, he he could, I guess he could pass for white, but, you know. But, yeah, I, I assumed he was, I, I assumed you were talking to a non-white black male. So just by his voice, you know, initially what I thought so uh, but uh, that's all I had on my line hmm. always good to ask I have heard some people say that they can you know distinguish between voices I'm not always good at that can be fooled that way too sometimes uh, were there other, did we miss anybody anybody else have commentary maybe her yes sir yes uh, yeah I um I also concur with uh Henry Chicago, by his, his cadence and his voice there, would have thought he was a non-white uh, black male. And then looking at his pictures, he would, um, there was some confusion for me. Um, I also had an additional question that I would ask him, like I said, by changing the protagonist in the movie from a white male to a white woman, how would that, how is that um, significant? I'll meet my line. Can I be heard? Uh, yes, sir, retired firefighter. That's a big change from the movie, changing the eliminating Romaine Gary and just having this white woman uh, actress find the dog. Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I uh, didn't come in until about the last uh, 10 minutes. Uh, was tied up in a, in, uh, on the phone with uh, someone that I've been knowing since I was a smaller child. Uh, and uh, one thing I did notice about the uh, the guests is when, in in my 
from my point of view, uh, when uh, Thomas, uh, through questions, uh, revealed that he was a white person, he stopped sounding like like a uh, non-white black male and started sounding more like a white person. His voice diction is what I'm talking about. Uh, not, not trying to be a conspiracy theorist, but that's what it sounded like to me. Uh, you know, there, there is such thing as a telephone voice that even non-white people have. And uh, I do notice that white people are experts at mimicking non-white black people in their tone of voice, the sound of their voice, uh, and they are interested, though there's they're a segment of white people who are like that for several reasons. Uh, uh, and uh, that could be him. That could be him. But uh, I would, I would uh, think that he uh, answered favorably to your definition of racism, white supremacy? Uh, he did, and he did acknowledge at the beginning of the program that he was white. So that was not something that we found out late. He did admit that at the beginning of the program. Yeah, okay. Because when, when I first chimed in, it sounded like, y'all, the interview was with a quote-unquote black person. But I, I, I meant that for me. But when Thomas came on, and Thomas was your quote-unquote last caller, uh, uh, and asked him those questions, his voice, his voice diction started sounding. It first sounded like a black person, a black male. And then it, to me it started sounding like a, a white male. It started sounding more and more like a white male. You know, and uh, it, I, I thought that was uh, interesting, at least, at least through my ears, I put it that way. It may not have been from anybody else's ears, but, uh, yeah, I kind of like missed the program in, in itself. But uh, that, that first question was in, was in, was in, uh, that you normally ask, kind of like even if I miss a program, uh, if I had known what the answer was for, you know, whether or not you're a white person, I know you ask that every time, and the whole thing about the definition of a uh, uh, racist white supremacy, if they answer that in a certain way, that gives me a real good understanding of who actually is the guest for that day, especially if it ends up being a white person. And, uh, yeah, so thanks. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to the uh, program later on to get a full view of it. But thank you. Uh, good evening. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Hi. Um, it was a very, it was a very, very interesting program. I am like terrified of dogs, and this program made it worse. <laughs> like a hundred times worse. Um, like as uh, I think Thomas is, Thomas right, I said that. Um, you know. I just never really gave it a historical context and not just historical, but put it also in the context of white supremacy. Like, you know, of course, if you look at something white supremacy, even dogs or what, whatever animals they can train, that is what they were training to do because that's what it means to be white. Um, the guy now, he looked not white. When I heard his voice, he sounded not white. 
I was surprised when, I guess, he uh, revealed that he was a white person. Um, I found it very interesting when Thomas asked the questions about him being accepted as white. If other, pe if other white people see him and don't accept him as white, and he was very like hesitant to answer that question, but he was very quick to answer the question about black people um, accepting him as um, black. And it was very interesting also when he ref ref referenced Rachel Dozal. Um, yeah, it was a great program. Great, made me want to um, really look into this dog thing and that uh, I didn't read the article and now I'm like super psyched to read the article. Yeah, it was great, it was great. Reading, more important, watch television, bye-bye. Yes, I think we've given out like a lot of good suggestions for reading material over the Rona situation. Could have done the whole program just talking about racially ambiguous, the Rachel Dozels and all that, like, because we didn't really get, like, who are you, like, who are you, he even said, he even said, he even said, he emailed and said that his in-laws, he might have said his parents too, but I know he said his in-laws wanted to listen to the program. And I think at that time, I was confused. I wasn't sure about, you know, are we talking to a white person or a non-white person? I'm thinking these are non-white people <laughs> Listening in, you know, all that we could act like. Wait a minute, well, let's let's see. Like, what relatives are here? Are they white people? Like, uh, do they have photographs? Do they have a Facebook page? Like, man, mm, mm, mm. fascinating, um, fascinating in many regards. The report, racial classifications. What does it mean to be white? White dog. Gosh, mm, mm, mm. threatening the top ten. Uh, yeah. Anybody else have comments they want to get in? Uh, yes, uh, I can. Uh, speaking of speaking of dogs, uh, back in the uh, the eighties, uh, and I, you know, in my first ten years or so of being on the fire department uh, for entertainment at some of the stations. Uh, this is before the cell phone was proficient at 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 uh, uh, not taking pictures but uh, filming people. They would use the you know the small cameras, the small VHS cameras, and and uh, the other one I forgot what it was. And they would put it on uh, put it put it on on uh, I believe YouTube or something like that. Anyway, they would be able to put it. And so you can see it on television, and you know, guys just sit there and watch dogs ripping people apart, ripping people apart, snatching off body parts, and oftentimes, what a dog is trained to do, and you y'all y'all probably talked about it, is go at the genitals of the victim. Is go right at the you can you can see that right now, present day on these police uh uh. uh videos that's on YouTube where they are snatching the person out the car and the dog actually is is got their their mouth right at the uh the victim's uh genitals. Uh two things I know about dogs, they have a they have a uh a, a smell uh capacity that goes well beyond people and their jaws. Their jaws are super powerful. Once they link onto something, they do not turn it loose unless whoever strains them comes and snatches them off. 
you know, and so, uh, yeah, uh, I've, I've seen it quite a bit on film. We did discuss the genitals. That is written explicitly in the report that we talked about today. They've been doing that for centuries, it seems. Worldwide, yeah. that was one of the key takeaways. Worldwide, this is not an America thing, getting dogs to attack right. black people. Anywho, we did our full broadcast. Uh, we will be here Thursday for White Dog. Man. <laughs> Summer of 2020, that was what we did. Threatening my top ten. Uh, I can only say any, any books where I end up reading other constructive books and getting, you know, accurate information, what it means to be white, learning about the system of white supremacy, that is constructive. Uh, we'll see about Tyler Wall. Folks had lots of, you know, interest. I had lots of interest. Uh, we'll see if we can get Tyler Wall on the program. He did the other report uh, for the very existence of civilization, The Police Dog and racial terror. It didn't say racial privilege, white privilege, any other nonsense, racial bias, racial terror. Uh, the report is on my Facebook uh, page. Is this like a 10-second? I just want to know if he was white. I don't know. I haven't seen any photographs. We'll have to see. Uh, but we will be here for the book club on Thursday. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hopefully we'll have no computer problems, so we can just do the regular stream online and, you know, rock and roll as normal. I uh, hope it was worthy of your Tuesday evening. Uh, stay safe. Stay away from dogs. Man, oh, man. Uh, Rex, they call it, isn't it? Isn't that Latin for king? R-E-X, and then they name the dog Rex. Anywho, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy racism. Need your brain, computer. Never know. Might be a white dog on the block or all kinds of other threats. So stay sober. Stay alert uh, in addition to being sober. Uh, lots of reasons to stay in the house. You see that movie Cujo? Man, that is the craziest movie ever. They have that rabbit dog. He's attacking white people even. Uh, but lots of reasons to stay in the house. Uh, armed white people, racist dogs, the Rona. Uh, if you are going to go out, be super alert in terms of your surroundings. Uh, it is not time to be in any skirmishes with whites. If they look like they're getting hostile, loud, anything of that nature, it is time to go. Uh, it's not taking any chances. You should have the assumption this white person is probably armed. If they're out in public getting rowdy and loud and all the rest looking like they want a confrontation, White people generally do not put themselves in situations unless they have an advantage and probably an overwhelming advantage. They're armed and then got two or three buddies with them who are also armed. It might be an enforcement official, like lots of reasons. Avoid all of that. If anything looks a little bit untoward, this whole outing is canceled. Wrap this up. We'll get back and try this again at a time when it is safe. That said, again, we're sober. If you are going to go out for something serious, you're alert, you're buckled up. If you're driving, you're not on the cell phone. Uh, just multiple reasons. One, staying alert. Two, just trying to do the little things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no, and their canines. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people 
victims of white supremacy, we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>